Welcome to episode 85 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. I'm your co-host, Russ. And I'm your other co-host, Mike. It's getting to be uh, more fall-like every day around here, Mike. Well, yeah, but we, we had a great weekend this weekend. It was really sunny and warm. I, this might be the last day I'm in shorts for the whole yeah. year. I was really out there enjoying it. It was great. Oh, yeah. The uh, transition from summer to winter is always really abrupt. Yeah, it's one day. You wake up one day and you're freezing and you have yeah. a cold. It's really awful. Not much in between. Yeah, I have to say, though, last week I had a cold, so there was no no booze. But I'm back on the sauce this week. I've got some oh. uh, some of the birthday brandy still going. So. I got some brandy. Yeah, this is a uh, Camus. I've got a little uh, wild turkey here this week, which I just bought because it was on sale. And then we had a scare mm. a couple weeks ago. October 1st, there were all these placards saying that, you know, booze prices were going up, uh, but they weren't mm. specific about which brands or which, you know, whiskeys, wines, and so forth. All I know is beer was going up. So I stocked up mm. on several of my favorite brands, and then I hadn't had wild turkey in a while. It was on sale. So I said, well, why not get I like one that of these one. too? That's a good one. The eight-year, right? That's a yeah. good one. It turned out to be a false alarm because none of those whiskeys went up in price, so... We're safe yeah. for the time being. Safe for the time being. Well, <laughs> speak for yourself, I guess, <laughs> because the, the 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 yen against the dollar is the weakest it's been since I've been in Japan, and I've been here for a really long time, you know, over 20 yeah. years. So, uh, man, I'm feeling the heat. <laughs> yeah, hopefully things will turn around for people on our side of the uh, exchange equation. Wish I had some American dollars now. That's all. Just <laughs> Japan has opened up to tourism for the first time starting last week. Right. So it's a great bargain for people coming from abroad. I live in a rather touristy area too. So it's really funny. They all um, they all go away at night. So now it's nighttime here now when we, re we record this. And uh, so it's like completely silent outside. But in the daytime, it's just wall-to-wall -wall people oh. again. <laughs> Japan has been picked as one of the uh, top tourist spots it's like the number one or number two spot or something like that or number three so a lot of people are going to be coming i guess so and it's cheap now yeah it's so cheap. if you're american come on down you got the uh the good exchange rate visit yeah. actually if listeners if you hear us and you come you know uh, write to us and tell us you're here maybe we'll uh meet up that'd be kind of cool yeah i would Bring do that suitcase of greenbacks and uh we'll work something out <laughs> <laughs> All right, before we get going into the program tonight, I want to remind all of our listeners that in the episode description, you're going to find links for Spotify and Apple Music to everything that we're going to talk about, all the recordings. Also, at the top of the description, you can get a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place on our preferred streaming platform, Deezer. You can also follow us there on the podcast at uh, username Adult Music Podcast. Now, if you don't see the full description or list of the recordings on your app or platform, come over to our host site, podbean.com, P-O-D-B-E-A-N. You can find everything easy to follow for all episodes in the past and this one there. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us. Take a moment, give us a ranking or write a short review. That helps us get listed in the browsing category recommendations, and that helps us grow our audience. You can also follow us on Facebook. We've got a page there and you can get extra info and new releases throughout the week. It was a big jazz week this week. I was putting up a few every day. You know, I don't know if we'll get to those in an episode or not, but if you're looking for the latest and best recordings, you can always come there. You can see our handsome faces over there too. Leave a message or a yeah. comment. 
And if you want to contact us directly with any other comments or questions, we'd be happy to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. And this week, right. we did hear yeah. from a fellow podcaster. And cool. uh, we're going to do a little uh, cross-pollination podcasting here this week. We'd like to introduce uh, Tom Gauker and his podcast, Something Came from Baltimore. Now, that sounds like it could be a modern horror movie title, <laughs> but it's not. And it's not. It, it came from outer space. Yeah, it came <laughs> from that Baltimore. vibe to it. Yeah. But it's not really about Baltimore yeah. either, but rather a jazz, blues, and R&B interview podcast uh, featuring interviews with musicians that we've discussed recordings from on our podcast, such as Todd Marcus, uh, Joey DeFrancisco, and others. So let's take a quick listen to Something Came from Baltimore. Gerald Albright, Maria Schneider, Charlie Hunter, Duke Robillard, Sean Jones, Walter Beasley, Steve Swallow. Something Came From Baltimore is a jazz, blues, and R&B podcast and radio show, and it's not really about Baltimore. Subscribe to the podcast and listen to your favorite artist or future favorite artist that Something Came From Baltimore and be a part of that Be More music scene. Joe Lovano, Jeff Coffin, Paula Cole, Denuso Makatani, Ann Passio, Chess Smith, Thumbscrew, mostly. So Tom got in touch and we thought our audiences might have some common interests. So please do check out Tom's podcast on your favorite podcast app or platform. I'll put the link to his host site on Anchor FM in the description this week for easy access. All right. Well, this week, unfortunately, we've got um, a little musical necrology. Necrology, yeah. So let's roll the theme. And there it is. Yeah. We were a little Classical late. theme for a jazz musician. Yeah, we were a little bit late anyway. this week um, because uh, the news didn't come out for a couple of days. But this week, uh, we'd like to uh, remember the passing of... Ronald Edward Cooper, Ronnie Cooper, uh, the great yeah. baritone saxophonist uh, who passed away on October 7th, a little bit before last week's podcast. He was born right. December 25th, Christmas Day, 1941. And he played in Latin, pop, rock, blues sessions. So he was he was 80 when he yeah, died. He was 80. Yeah. Okay. He played tenor sax, soprano sax, clarinet, flute, and was associated with Eddie Palmieri and well-known for hard bop Latin jazz playing. He had played with B.B. Uh, King, Paul Simon, Eric Clapton in the pop world as well. Uh, one of his better performances was with uh, Dr. Lonnie Smith on his 1970 Blue Note album, Drives. Uh, he had played with the Saturday Night Live band, and uh, he had also played with uh, Slide Hampton, Maynard Ferguson, George Benson, just a huge resume. We heard him on the podcast back in episode five uh, with his great recording fellow baritone saxophonist Gary Smilin on Tough Baritones, if you haven't heard that yeah, recording. That's a record we we both picked. Well, even on my jazz thing, we picked it as one of the uh, top 10 albums of the year. Yeah, last I really year. like that one. It made the list. I really like baritone sax, So as did my dad, by the way. <laughs> so I wonder if he heard that, yeah. And when I was looking at that uh, came out just last month, uh, is this a recording Steve Gadd and the WDR big band called Center Stage came out in September. And that may very well uh, end up being his last recorded performance. Hmm. Um, so you can look for that. It's up on streaming as well, too. So, you know, we love that big 
burly Barry Sachs sound. We it do. Is, uh, gets mm-hmm. you going. Uh, but unfortunately, we won't hear any more. So rest in peace, Ronnie Cooper. All right. How are we doing here? Anything else uh, to any other business to take care of before we get down to the, the business at hand, as they say? I think so. We may have a little update on a little musical summit next week. So stay tuned for that. With, oh, yeah, uh, that's right. Some thanks, uh, but we won't. Yeah, I'm glad you reminded me of that. Yeah. <laughs> I completely spaced out. The time is just passing so fast. Yeah. Because yeah. I remember you told me this was going to happen. And I was like, oh, okay, that's that's weeks away. And now all yeah. of a sudden it's coming up. And hopefully that's going to lead to a uh, new Ranitsky release. But uh, stay tuned oh, yeah. next week for that. Um, so anyway, today, however, we are Going into the uh, in classical music, the first our first pick for this week. What's our theme this week? Do we have a theme? In jazz, my theme is ensembles. It's ensembles. Well, that's yeah. There's no, there's no solo. Classical, yeah. Well, there is a soloist, but okay. Mm. Anyway, we do have a we have jazz like kind of jazz chamber ensembles, and we have uh, classical orchestras. And the first one is an orchestra. It's the Haydn Twenty Thirty Two Project Volume Twelve, and this one has the name. Le jeu et le plaisir, which means um, games and pleasures, or you know, something like mm-hmm. that. And this is by the um, this is Giovanni Antonini's project. He's been doing this with Il Giardino Armonico, and uh, the orchestra we hear on this album, uh, Camera Orchestra Basel. So he's been going back and forth between the two. This is on the Alpha label. Now this is Volume Twelve, and we actually talked about Volume Ten and Eleven on adult music and i was going to skip this one because i said okay we did 10 and 11 uh no need to do this we'll just kind of check in on it as it goes on maybe a year or two from now but i really liked this one a lot so i wanted to talk about it mm-hmm. especially since we didn't like number volume 10 this the series has been uh, kind of hit or miss mostly hit and some of them were really great i've recommended uh number four is my is my personal favorite one um, this one is up there for me. I don't know how they, what the critics said about it, but I really liked it. And it's, I especially liked uh, the first um, symphony that's on the program, Symphony Number no. 61 in D major. We'll get to that in a moment. First of all, this album is 82 minutes long, <laughs> bursting the time limits of the CD. It really took a long time. I, I took three days to get through this because I just came home, mm. was kind of wiped out. And hearing a, a full symphony, it's four movements. The The thing is, they're not long. They're like 20 minute works each one 25 minutes 20 minutes like for the four movements but there's a kind of musical narrative in them and it's not you can't just kind of when i when i hear a symphony i just can't lay back you know they're kind of they're intellectually involving so i feel like i really have to focus on them and they kind of do take a lot out of you after a day of work some people can uh you know just kind of kick back and relax to a, a symphony not me they engage your memory, I think, to get the most out of them. You have to remember what you've heard, so you get the development yeah. and restatements. And otherwise, you know, you're not appreciating the arc of the work. Right. Not only that, in um, especially the first movement of a symphony is a is a sonata form movement, and sometimes the second movement is too. Um, but the first movement, kind of by definition, has to be. And what that is is you have two themes in the beginning, and then they repeat at the end. So, you ha- and not only that, but they're stated again in the uh, the middle section, the development section, you know, in short form in different keys it's it's really a good exercise for your memory for your brain to be listening to these like because you're hearing the same these same little threads in in different keys and things like that it's it's just a good a good exercise for you it's also enjoyable 
what else do I want to say? It's about symphonies. Oh, I can't remember now. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah, you, you got to remember all these things. And uh, not only that, but Haydn has a way of, um, he's, he's a little bit of a practical joker. So he'll bring themes back, making it seem like you're heading back to the recapitulation, but then it'll veer off in another direction and you realize you're still in the development section. Sometimes it's hard to tell. When, sometimes you're in the middle of the recapitulation without realizing it. And that happened to me on this recording a bit. So it's, there's a lot of intellectual trickery going on mm -hmm. if you know how the rules of the game. Uh, think of a symphony as um, sort of like a Western. Maybe like Western movies. Like when the gunslinger goes into the bar, you know there's going to be a gunfight. There's an expectation there. And maybe the director will subvert your expectation or he'll do it in a way you didn't expect. That's generally what happens in a symphony too. There are things that have to happen. Sometimes... They don't happen when you expect them to, or they happen in an unusual way. So that's what makes symphonies and sonata form movements very interesting. And Haydn's really good at this, as it mm -hmm. turns out. It's one of the things Mozart liked about him so much. He was a little bit of a musical joker, as it were. Kind of refined, witty sense of humor. All right, anyway, one of the things I want to say about, the, well, the series, I haven't mentioned this yet, but... Um, this Haydn 2032 project now in its 12th volume, it's actually, there are actually 13 of them out now. There's the 12 symphony ones. And then they also recorded uh, the creation, um, which is a, a cantata. So, um, so that it, that it doesn't really count in the series, but they, the same ensemble put that out with vocalists as well. All right. So anyway, each CD in this series has a theme to it. And this one is Le Jeu de Plaisir, the, um, you know, games and pleasure. So it's a happy mm -hmm. one. They're all major key works, just like last week. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> the, with the piano works. It's all major key Haydn that we're hearing here. Although there are minor key movements, so no worries. No, so they have a themed music program. They also, each release has a unique essayist for the booklet note. And they also hire an individual photographer, a different one for each um, release. And he takes photographs that go on the front cover and in the booklet. So they're all kind of these unique, even though it's like a series, they're all these unique sort of um, artwork on them. They're all they're all very different. And uh, the, this particular one, <laughs> volume 12, features a really a pink cover or purple, pink, <laughs> lavender. I don't know what color you would say this is. Um, it has, and in the booklet too, there are more pictures of the very colorful Indian Holi Festival, H-O-L-I, the Holi Festival. Which, um, in which I don't really know how it works, but um, people throw colored chalk at each other and you, you get your mm. face all chalked up and things like that. I don't really know the background of it too much, but there are a lot of photo, <laughs> photos of that, as well as some others. Um, there are other photos in the booklet that look like they were taken in a Central or a South American country or maybe a Caribbean island. I guess this, this photographer had a very particular idea of joy and pleasures. Um, which these photos and especially the Indian ones, the one on the cover, we got this happy looking guy here enjoying the Holy Festival. Um, it evokes a kind of joy and pleasure. I don't know. It's kind of an odd choice for Haydn, though. <laughs> but anyway, there you go. All right, let's talk about the works. What drew me to this particular album, the reason I wanted to talk about it was the first work on the album, tracks one through four, Symphony number 61 in D major. That's Hoboken 1, colon 61. And I just thought this was such a beautiful performance. Let me see if I can articulate what it is about it that I liked so much. Anyway, the first movement is uh, labeled Vivace. And it starts with a pretty typical Haydn string burst followed by light bowing. And the attack on the violin strings is vividly captured. The bass drum that provides accents has a boomy quality to it that I like. 
it doesn't thud. It kind of booms out. You know, I kind of mm. like the little echo on it. Um, the second theme at a minute and five seconds features repeated notes on the wind instruments and a flute figure. And boy, are they gorgeously delivered. They're beautifully textured, beautifully caught by the recording, and beautifully balanced in the context, I guess, or in the texture. Um, they're elegant, they're soft, they're beautifully textured. The repeated notes in the winds are really creamy, and I really liked that a lot. I've rarely heard mm. such a gorgeous texture from a period instrument ensemble. It's, this actually sounds very unique to my ears, this particular performance of this work. Not, not the work itself. The work itself kind of sounds pretty Haydn-esque. It sounds like someone thoroughly thought this out, not only the orchestra part, but uh, the engineer too, how he was going to balance this. They sound, um, the winds sound a bit in the background and that's part of the effect. Uh, it works really well. At two minutes and 14 seconds, the opening material repeats. Uh, the whole idea of having the winds sound rather distant pays off to me. Uh, before the development begins at four minutes and 25 seconds, there's a prolonged and rather surprising pause, making one wonder if the movement has ended. <laughs> it was really <laughs> well taken by Antonini. He really kind of caught me by surprise. Like, hey, there's a lot left in this, isn't there? And indeed there was. Uh, beautifully taken flowing fragments of the expository material are heard uh, flowing through different keys in the development, as we would expect. At 5 minutes and 15 seconds, a more histrionic note is sounded. At 5 minutes and 44 seconds, we burst back into the opening material. But there's a shortcut to the second theme this time, I think. I, I didn't recognize all, you know, you have to remember what you heard in the uh, exposition. And uh, maybe I did, maybe I didn't. But it sounds like uh, they just eliminate the bridge here or something. I didn't listen to this that closely that I was going to go back and figure out what was happening. Anyway, listen to the chords at 6 minutes and 21 seconds leading to the second theme. Uh, this time, for the gorgeous wind sec the gorgeous winds in the second theme, there's a subtle but very noticeable bassoon playing along, uh, lightly vulgarizing the material in a humorous way. A very Haydn-esque touch. Uh, really, it really, that really made me smile. 6 minutes and 21 seconds. Give that a listen. A wonderfully taken movement in every way, full of energy, good humor, and really not comparable to other performances because it's unique. Not that it's better. It's it's there's something very unique to me in my ear about this uh, this particular performance, and that's why I wanted to talk about this album. Really, is for that and for the rest of this work. We go on to the second movement, Adagio. This is taken at a perfect slow tempo. You might remember um, in uh, volume ten of this series, I said that the uh, the orchestra sounded like it was being relentlessly, the music sounded like it was being like whipped, like it was like some unruly horse. Yeah. That's not the case here at all. It's so perfect. And uh, it's a different ensemble though this time, I have to say. The the Giardino Armonico can get a little uh, unruly in their, in their playing. They're very energetic. <laughs> <laughs> These guys are a little more, the camera orchestra Basel that we hear here is a little more uh, laid back, shall we say. Um, the string sound is muted, hazy, Appealingly languorous, you know, kind of after a good night's sleep, you're in bed, kind of stretch it, you don't want to move, you know? Anyway, <laughs> that's the feeling I got from the opening of this adagio. At around 40 seconds, we melt appealingly into a second theme. Melt is the operative word there because the it, it, it's just seamless the way the second theme comes in. There's a daydreamy quality to the way this theme is taken, making one drift off with it. Pianissimi are very quiet and perfectly judged. At a minute and 50 seconds, we get some slightly harsher material with the winds entering the texture en masse. 
all is well is shortly afterwards, and especially by the cadence at 2 minutes and 53 seconds, after which the opening material repeats. I want to say something about cadences. We live in the 21st century where everything is um, not working out, shall we say, and hearing a cadence is just the most satisfying thing to me, especially now, because it's just so solid <laughs> and everything is fine with the world when you hear a cadence. Everything is at rest. The line has ended. <laughs> you know, it's 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 a wonderful thing. We should all be listening to classical music of of the past and of the present too. But you know, just for that reason, it'll keep our heads on straight while the rest of the world is going crazy. Anyway, excuse me. Back to the <laughs> back to the material at hand. <laughs> all right, we move on. At five minutes and forty five seconds, we get a development section. I think featuring lightly crescendoing winds over arpeggiated patterns in the strings. Again, the pianissimi are. Pin drop quiet and very appealing. Although I wouldn't turn the stereo up for this because the um, the loud parts are, they kind of, they're not very loud, but they boom out of the speakers like oh, suddenly. Um, still, the sound is so beautiful on this. There are a few harsh chords just before the uh, seventh minute and they shake things up a bit, but we dock safely at around seven minutes and five seconds in the opening melody and slightly rewritten recapitulation. So this adagio is also a, a sonata form. The way I heard it. The original mm. themes are all discernible. Uh, beautifully, elegantly taken tonic chord at the end by the light winds. Third movement, Menuet. Has an allegro. It's taken allegretto. And then there's a trio in the middle section, which is another menuet. More lightly scored. So the menuet comes in heavily and a bit startlingly after what we've just heard. It's gruffer and louder than the material we've heard so far. And has a waltzing 3-4 quality to it. One gets a sense of it being a dance for a big occasion in this performance. The trio is lighter and features winds. Uh, phrases are short, and the 3-4 rhythm has a dance quality, but not a spinning, waltzing one like the one in the opening minuet. Uh, the opening minuet returns and ends with a big, chaotic sound. Fourth movement and last movement, prestissimo, very fast. And it is indeed very fast and has a mischievous dancing rhythm. It's very softly and fluidly played until about the 35 second mark when we get a sudden forte. This is the kind of thing that uh, I guess Beethoven would pick up from Haydn because Beethoven used this sforzato a lot. Notice the wind instruments in the bass, how vividly they register on the brief occasions when they peek out of the texture. Uh, this is a short movement at 3 minutes and 21 seconds, and it moves uh, like a quick rondo. At a minute and 36 seconds, we're already at the second departure. All of the contrasting scenes keep up the vigorous figuration and tempo of the rondo theme. When the rondo theme repeats, it's for the last time, and it heads for a rousing approach to the final chord. The performance of this entire work really captured me. I loved the textures and balance that Antonini was able to pull out of the ensemble. I would say by, by all means, hear this particular work and hear the rest of the album. But I didn't feel like the rest of this was as interesting, although it was all good, as the mm. this particular symphony, which really caught my ear. The second symphony on this album is Symphony Number no. 66 in B-flat major by Haydn, uh, Hoboken 1, colon 66. First movement, Allegro con brio. I love the ensemble in the sforzato chords that punctuate the quiet material in the opening. They sound rich and incredibly precise with the bass registering strongly. It has a satisfying solar plexus hit to it. I love it when music does that. The music flows beautifully, even into the minor key excursion at a minute and four seconds. Just beautiful playing here. 
This repeat of the opening material in a minute and 38 seconds or so. The tempo is perfect. The phrasing flows when necessary. Uh, gorgeous playing. We get to the development at 3 minutes and 13 seconds. It starts quietly, but different themes burst out sforzato as various keys are quickly run through. I guess I should mention sforzato means when you suddenly hit the, hit the, the notes very hard after a soft passage. It means forced, okay, in Italian. At 4 minutes and 22 seconds, we hear a rewritten, a rewritten recapitulation as the opening material appears but is quickly veered away from, a technique that delighted audience of the late 18th century. Um, this is one of those um, examples of what I was talking about when you think you're hearing the recapitulation, the, the opening material again, and then it's not. It's, it just kind of pulls the rug out. So 4 minutes and 22 seconds onward, you can listen to that. Haydn does it a lot, in fact. Nevertheless, the piece gets the proper balance. At 5 minutes and 45 seconds, we launch into a rather unexpected section that still sounds like part of the development with a passing through various keys. At 6 minutes and 54 seconds, we hear the opening theme in what sounds like a truncated recapitulation. As in Symphony 61, there are so many harmonic and formal curveballs thrown at, it, at you that it's hard to follow the shape. Well, you follow the basic shape. You just don't know exactly where the joins are. But you still get a sense of it, and all is well at the end. Second movement, Adagio, again, muted, as in Symphony 61, very beautiful, taken a bit faster than in the previous symphony, and it sounds slightly more here than you might expect. I suspect that's because harmonic tension in this particular piece builds up more effectively at this speed at the first minute mark and after. So we're getting this kind of slightly fast tempo at the two-minute mark. We get the cadence at 3 minutes and 55 seconds after which the material continues into darker, more minor harmony. At 4 minutes and 37 seconds, the slackened pace picks up with stabs from the high strings as the brass and winds play chords and the low strings play a rhythmic pattern. At 5 minutes and 7 or so, the gentle, elegant opening material returns. We hear all of it. Then after the cadence at 6 minutes and 30 seconds, we go back into a minor section for a repeat. All of this is nicely paced, and the sections are well set off from each other by the ensemble. At 7 minutes and 12 seconds, we get the urgent music with the high string stabs again. The opening material returns for the last time at about 7 minutes and 45 seconds uh, to the final cadence at the end. Third movement, the traditional menuet and trio. This has a kind of, the menuet has a kind of self-satisfied rhythm, which has a lot of ebullient good feeling to it. At a minute and 30 seconds, we hear the trio. It's more flowing and rather shy sounding as taken here. Nice contrast to the opening menuet. It's rather muted in tone, and it takes place in the winds, giving it its creamier feel. And the menuet returns at 2 minutes and 15 seconds. The fourth movement is a finale, scherzando e presto. Scherzando means joking or playing. All right, So there's going to be a kind of humorous quality to this, or a joyful, let's say, quality. Um, it's a four-minute finale, and it starts at a quickish tempo in the strings, which are soft and muted, making the listener lean in to hear it. At 46 seconds, it gets louder, but not so suddenly that it will startle. Uh, the tempo is a bit measured performance, and there's no problem with that. It makes the brief hesitations register well. At a minute and 48 seconds, there's a slamming on of the brakes in the chords. Then a detour in harmony is taken at the original tempo after two minutes. At two minutes and 35 seconds, we're back to the opening theme. And at 3 minutes and 5 seconds, there's another departure featuring winds and brass along with the strings. This heads to an emphatic set of final chords. 
Okay. Now, in all of these um, albums in this uh, Haydn 2032 series, the program always includes another composer that somehow relates to Haydn. Usually, it's someone of the era, but not always. Um, in this case, it is someone from the era. It's, um, well, we don't know who it is. Um, it's uh, Johann <laughs> Michael Haydn attributed to him, but we're not really sure that it's him. And also, there were pr- probably other hands involved in the... Um, composition of this work so we just don't know it used to be attributed to joseph haydn but it's not by him it's the toy symphony in d major and uh it's got a a number um hoboken 2 colon 47 so these are works attributed to haydn but they're not really by him uh in in german this is known as the berchtold's gardner and this is an urtext edition by sonia gerlach okay so this is like a little um reprieve from the symphonies it's very light it's a three-movement work. The opening Allegro has a typical classical theme and introduces some mechanical gadgets in it by the 15-second mark. It's got a cuckoo imitation in a recorder that you hear almost right away and a mechanical device that plays bird sounds. Okay, this kind of thing, you got to really <laughs> put your head back into the 18th century for this. Mechanical objects were just all the rage. If you, if you pulled one out and started like cranking it up and it made these really cool sounds, you get all these oohs from the audience, I bet, you know, because mechanical yeah. things were cool back then. This one wanted me to reach for my shotgun. And, yeah, well, and by the end, it did. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> it's not very long, but let's. it's very repetitive. That was the problem. Yeah, It's charming. So at the beginning, you think, oh, this is really charming. I really was enjoying it, too. I always like cuckoo sounds in classical pieces, and there are certainly a lot of pieces that uh, feature the cuckoo, the cuckoo being a... A bird that's heard all over Europe, really. Um, you hear it actually in Beethoven's uh, Pastoral Symphony, too, as well as other works. People were closer to nature back in the day, too, so they always appreciated these sounds. Um, the movement is pretty repetitive, <laughs> to say the least. The sounds are all easy on the ear and pleasant, as recorded and performed here. So they're not, they don't come across harshly. There's some kind of percussive rattling devices in the mix, too. I have to say, the mechanical bird sound is rather repetitive, and it always sounds like the same large flock of excited birds. There's like no subtlety (laughs) and no difference every time this thing is cranked up. Um, The movement has a march-like feel to it. It's a charmer for audiences of the day, really. For us, it might kind of get old fast, let's say. The second movement, Minuet and Trio, uh, the cuckoo is heard again at a slower pace in this slowish minuet. He's always playing the same two notes. He doesn't go into other keys, in other words. He just kind of <laughs> is always on these two notes. It's getting rather repetitive at this point. Even the thematic material sounds like a slower version of the first movement. Um, there's a snare drum, often it's accentuating the cuckoo sounds here. At a minute and 29 seconds, the trio starts, and we hear those birds again, the, the mechanical birds, sounding exactly the same as they did in the first movement. <laughs> it's cute and beautifully executed and recorded on this album. But musically, it's getting to be a bit too much. It's a little too cute for my uh, jaded 21st century ears. <laughs> my, my, <laughs> I guess the uh, composer wanted to show off their toys. Uh, mechanical objects were very much in vogue, as I said, in the 18th and 19th centuries. The menuet repeats at the end. And then in the third moment, we get a presto, which thankfully is very short at 52 seconds <laughs> because the recorded and chirping bird device are thrown together at a fast tempo here. So it's basically... Nothing new, really. Uh, it's just fast to balance out the work. The material beneath all of this is pretty unremarkable. 
It's the toy sounds of the, the attraction, eh, but not really for us, you know, for those audiences back in the mm-hmm. day. No complaints at all about the excellent performance and probably the best you'll ever hear of this piece, but I'm glad it was short. <laughs> anyway, we end. This is kind of interesting. The, the last symphony on this work, on this album, tracks 12 through 15, are Haydn's Symphony Number no. 69 in C major, Hoboken 1, colon 69, uh, nicknamed the Loudon symphony and um there's something it's a funny note about this symphony in the spirit of the uh golden raspberry awards or the razzies that some of you may know about <laughs> um they're held in hollywood the night before the oscars to single out the worst acting performance of the previous year um in that same spirit the Haydn society of great britain decided in 2012 to choose the worst of Haydn's approximately 104 symphonies and this one won. <laughs> so this is the worst <laughs> Haydn Symphony, according to the uh, Haydn Society in Great Britain. Wow. <laughs> this is it. You're not going to hear worse than this. And it's not bad, actually. I, no, not bad yeah. at all for the worst. <laughs> yeah. It's dedicated to uh, General Loudon of the Austrian Army and the scholar H.C. Robbins Landon, who was really... Um, I remember him from my younger days, the 80s and 90s. He was writing a lot of books about Mozart and Haydn. I'm pretty sure he wrote about Mozart too. Um, but he wrote about this particular symphony. In the first movement, elegant poise has supplanted nervous brilliance. The adagio, second movement, has some highly original harmonic touches and unusual dynamic marks, but all of this seems to mask an emotional vacuum. Ooh, it's mean. <laughs> and the menuetto Ooh. is rather pompous and the trio conventional. One cannot avoid the impression that Haydn did not entertain much sympathy for General Loudon. Well, we really don't know. That's kind of a nasty comment, I yeah. think. Anyway, let's give you our um, view of this symphony. Voted in 2012 as Haydn's Worst, <laughs> number 69. All right. The first movement is Vivace. It's got a big bang for the opening, as is common in Haydn, followed by something more regal in the brass. A crescendo leads to a cadence, then right into the bridge to the second theme. We hear the second theme at 59 seconds, elegant, which is really quick, by the way. There's no, not really a bridge mm. to it that you know prolongs the uh, the opening. Mm. The second theme is elegantly played, as we've heard throughout the album. All of the sections are compact in the exposition. We're at the repeat of the opening at a minute and 31 seconds. That's really quick. So the entire first and second theme are over in a minute and a half. So he's not really doing much to pad this um, the, the thematic material. The ensemble takes sforzato chords dramatically, but they're restrained here. They don't blow you out of your seat. And I think that's in keeping with Haydn's general aesthetic, though he did like to surprise his audiences. At three minutes and two seconds... Oh, I, I should tell you this little story, too, about Haydn. He had, Haydn worked for the Esterhaza family, and uh, so he always knew whose audience was. And he had these, um, these women who would go to the uh, concert, people from the uh, family, and they would always fall asleep while his works were playing and so for them he wrote the surprise symphony which is a symphony that's fairly quiet and then it has this big bang in the middle and you can just imagine Haydn like peeking out of the curtain at that point to just see these women just jump out of their seats as though they had been shot or something so he was he was that kind of person sounds like he would be fun to be around actually he's the one composer I actually wouldn't mind meeting the rest of them I'll just take the music thanks they were all lunatics anyway at uh, three minutes and two seconds, we go into a new key and a regal set of repeated notes announces the development, which really gets into some saturated sound at about three minutes and 30 seconds. 
At 4 minutes and 29 seconds, we hear the opening theme again. But one always has to ponder if Haydn, with Haydn if this is a false recapitulation. It seems more cheerful this time around. We actually get a full cadence at 5 minutes and 34 seconds. And the piece sounds like it's over. But of course, it continues with long segments in the same key, but with added material. It sounds like Haydn in the early pieces as well as this has fused the recap with developmental ideas. Uh, at 6 minutes and 23 seconds, we hear the second theme. At 7 minutes, uh, we get a proper recapitulation minus a bridge to the second theme. It's an interesting early use of the sonata form, which was being developed at the time. Um, so, man, nothing wrong with this movement. It was just kind of ordinary. It has one little kind of trick in the development, you know, but that's about it. Second movement, un poco adagio piuttosto andante. Okay, that hushed, muted string sound we heard in the previous two Haydn symphonies is back here. The gentle theme remains so until the winds come in at a minute and 30 seconds to assist in a crescendo. But all cadences quietly at two minutes, and we get a repeat of the opening. This adagio is taken at a quicker tempo than the other two, yet it winds up being longer at 10 minutes and 19 seconds. I think this is a really lot of, a lot of notes to play in this one. It's got some light, good spirits in the melodic material. Antonini really keeps this material moving. Uh, at 4 minutes and 5 seconds, we get some harsh, for the era, developmental material with dark minor keys and unexpected pauses. At 4 minutes and 40 seconds, the violins make their lonely plea. By the 5 minute and 41 second, we're found our way back to the opening tonality and thematic material. 17, 7 minutes and 17 seconds, the darker, harsher minor material repeats, as well as the forlorn violin line that follows. At 8 minutes and 40 seconds, we get a different approach to the ending cadence, a hesitant line in the strings that pauses, after which the orchestra puzzles out the approach to the final cadence. Lovely retard to the end. Now, one of the things, this doesn't sound like an emotional vacuum for me, and that's um, Antonini's doing, because he plays it at a bit of a quicker tempo, and I think that's what kind of hmm. gives it a bit of you know feeling to it, a bit of forward momentum. So the conductor saves the day. And the, and the ensemble. Third movement, minuet and trio. Big, bold, broad minuet. Accents come down very deliberately, accented by the bass drum. At a minute and seven seconds, the lighter, skittering trio is heard. It's charming and includes some hints of wind for orchestral color. Yeah, no big deal in this movement, really. It's pretty standard. The fourth uh, movement finale, Scherzando e Presto, has light, intertwined, quick string theme, a quick string theme starting. It's a welcome contrast after the boldness of the minuet. Bass drums are featured here for accents too, heard after the 30-second mark. This moves like a light-themed minuet with boisterous departures. Check out the one at a minute and 45 seconds, the departure that is, which keeps inching towards a new key at high volume, then falls away with skittering figures in the violins in the minor key. When the theme comes back, it's boisterous with the bass drum this time, around 2 minutes and 40 seconds. The approach to the final cadence is very extroverted and features the bass drum often. Okay, so if this is the worst Haydn symphony, um, he wrote a <laughs> lot of really good symphonies. This is really not bad. I mean, it's kind of, it's a little less interesting than Haydn can be, though. Let's just say that. Okay, so for me, this record, and especially the opening Symphony 61, really lifted me up. It's all in major keys. Haydn's always very witty. It's it's It just sounds like this... You know, you, you haven't, you're in this kind of intelligent uh, you know, like environment. It always kind of makes me feel good 
listening to Haydn's music. Elegant performances with interesting and successful instrument placement choices and some miraculous mixtures of timbre. It's really the ensemble and Antonini's achievement, I would say. Uh, these performances sound unique to me. The Toy Symphony acts as a sort of distraction, a lightweight amuse-bouche, as the French would say. They say that about food, though. Uh, between the three main symphonies, which are hardly heavy, but have more layers of formal and harmonic content in them. And I guess I'm happy I heard the Toy Symphony. It does break up the sound of the similar orchestration of the symphonies. Uh, perhaps one could say that the sound Antonini brings to the three Haydn symphonies are too similar in nature. Yet by the end, this, to be honest, this program gets weaker as it goes. But it doesn't, it's not, that's not, it's not bad. Okay, he starts with the strongest work and it kind of goes down from there, I guess. But the, again, the last work, you're, you're not in a bad place. It's all perfect in its rhythm and touch, so I can't complain. Uh, it tapers off as it goes, as I said, but I really enjoyed this recording and I recommend you hear it. Yeah, I like this too. Overall, the interpretation is what kept me into it. You know, it um, the performances are kind of spirited. Lots of uh, highlights of yeah. the contrasts in the dynamic material. It's a very clean recording too. It's clear you can hear all the parts very well. And I think that Antonini really brings out the interesting little contrasts and jokes that Haydn has mm. and sets them up really well. And so even if you've heard these works before, he brings a kind of little extra suspense and narrative to his uh, conducting of that that sets things up and puts them in the context nicely. And yeah, I just enjoyed it. I felt, you know, the first work is the strongest one. As you said, it doesn't really uh, build to a great kind of uh, final statement. Uh, and with yeah. a little toy symphony there, as those birds were... <laughs> getting on my nerves after a while but i, I still had I ready fun to check it. out at that point yeah <laughs> and you know so i'm not really looking when i'm listening to Haydn or something i'm not looking for some great emotional statement i know it's pretty music that's well crafted and it's elegant that extra, i think yeah it's yeah, elegant. A good word elegant a quality that's missing in the entirety of 21st century and anywhere in the world in the 21st century but these are done with flair and charm and uh, that little extra lift to the interpretation. And I think if you like any classical era music and Haydn in particular, this will be well worth your time. And it's mostly uplifting. And uh, as we said, positive kind of major themes. Uh, it'll right. put you in a good mood and uh, be easy on the air. So check it out. Yeah, all's well with the world here. Okay. Moving on to our second release. Well, we took a lot of time on that one. Hmm. Hmm. Anyway. Our second release is called Secret Love Letters. Ooh. Ooh you get yeah. a lot of those, don't you? I, well, I, I wrote a lot of them back in the day. <laughs> oh, you wrote? Oh. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> many of them weren't answered. But, uh, you know, the funny thing is I'm still in touch with people I kind of dated like long ago in some cases. And they saved those letters. Like they showed me some of them. And it's, I got to tell you, it's really embarrassing. It's like a punishment to actually have to read the I stupid things so. you wrote wow. in college. Oh, <laughs> it's really unbelievable. Anyway, um, Secret Love Letters. This is uh, the Georgian violinist Lisa Batiashvili, who I really like. I've heard uh, her play the uh, Sibelius uh, Violin Concerto, and that really turned me on. I really liked it a lot. This is the uh, Philadelphia Orchestra accompanying her for two of the pieces, anyway, and uh, conducted by Yannick Neze Segan. And this is on the Deutsche Grammophon label. What we get here 
are two chamber works kind of sandwiching two orchestral works where the violin is featured. The violin is featured in all four. Now, the fir- the reason I wanted to talk about this is because the first work, and we've never talked about this work on the podcast, it's one of my favorites of all time, is uh, Cesar Franck's Sonata for Violin and Piano in A Major. I love this work so much, and uh, I've always wanted to hear new recordings of it to see what people are doing with it. Now, of course, there's no orchestra on this. The uh, pianist is Georgi Gigashvili, who's also Georgian, and um, he's um, he's a good uh, partner in this work. Okay, so if anyone knows the Cesar Franck, um, if you if you're unfamiliar with this work, the uh, the version to hear is the 1970s uh, Kyung Wa Chung and Rado Lupu recording. Um, that's the benchmark for me. I still love it. In fact, I know it a little too well, so I'm kind of hoping something else is going to come out that's going to take me away from it. It's also recorded in the 70s, and it's not quite as clean as some modern recordings can be. And in fact, this one's a lot cleaner than that one. But let's talk. This is actually a really excellent performance. I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, The first movement, Allegretto Ben Moderato. The piano states its opening chords, and we hear the violin come in quietly with a lot of room reverb on it. It's almost like the violin and piano are recorded in different spaces. Like they're not, or I don't know, the violin is just distant, and we're picking up a lot of the room reverb uh, more than on the piano, which I have to say is a dangerous balance. Uh, because the piano in this work gets very loud. Um, yeah. And maybe that's why they record, were recorded sort of separately so that the engineer could boost the sound on one if you needed to. I thought the violin is relatively soft compared to the piano in, in yeah. here, almost dangerously so, because yeah. her tone is so light and sweet. I yeah. felt fear fear of it uh, <laughs> evaporating a bit, yeah. Well, if you know where this work is going to go, too, you start kind of worrying about that. It's really a hard work for the pianist to play because he's an equal partner. This very much is a violin and piano sonata, not just a violin sonata with a piano playing the chords in the back. Um, But the piano has to play these really roiling passages. And they have to sound loud and passionate, but they kind of have to be quiet enough so that the violin can be heard. So it's like a real trick to... uh, put this across. Most people play the piano part too loud and you just drown the violin out. So it's a good work for, to hear from professionals. So let's see. It sounds fine though, uh, the violin. Very vivid. I think it could be drier on the recording. I think I would have liked that better. Uh, that said, Batyashvili phrases beautifully and pulls out some of the light discords that occur in her line against the harmony. A light, a nice touch because um, uh, Chung and Lupu didn't do that. They, they went for the kind of good sounding melodic line she's got a full gorgeous tone pleasure to listen to just like in that old sibelius uh, concerto the crescendo that ends at a minute and 33 seconds gets impressively loud the piano sound is very vivid and this is welcome because he's got a lot of virtuosic material to play i like gigashvili's playing in this movement a lot the piano however sounds a lot closer than the naturally quieter violin and this is a work where the piano could easily drown the violin out as i said but that thankfully doesn't happen due to gigashvili's sensitivity to his partner's sound and possibly the engineer i really don't know how this was recorded it's got a lovely gentle ending second movement allegro here's where the fireworks start it's a very passionate movement starting with the roiling piano lines uh, Gigashvili doesn't go for the absolute aggression of Lupu in this um, piece. He's more careful, but the passion comes across. Batyashvili sounds deeply involved in her line. Uh, Gigashvili, even in this movement, plays with a sensitive touch. 
Uh, he's sensitive with the pedal, too, clipping the ends of phrases to leave space for the violin to register. I thought that was really sensitive of him. By two minutes and five seconds, the passion has calmed down a bit as the violin states a smoldering line. I've never heard this line with quite that quality, and I really liked it. At three minutes and 40 seconds, the music builds up via emphatic statements to the roiling material, which is back by four minutes and two seconds, with some different comments by the violin this time. Batyashvili's playing is deeply musical. She'll forego a bit of passion to keep the musicality of the line intact, an approach I appreciated. This, this doesn't have the abandonment of Chang Lupu, but it attracted me for Batyashvili's fresh take on some of the violin lines and Gigashvili's overall sensitivity in the midst of his virtuosic lines. The quietness achieved at 6 minutes and 30 seconds is gorgeous in the context of this movement. It's beautifully judged all the way through, and I'm liking this performance a lot. Virtuosity from both players at the end and a dramatic approach to the final chord. The third movement, Recitativo Fantasia, it has a lot of instructions. Ben moderato, ben moderato to molto lento to a tempo moderato. Gigashvili plays his opening chords here, rather matter-of-factly, but it sets up Batyashvili for her soliloquy beautifully. She takes it with a beautiful tapering off at the end of the phrase, which really needs to be heard. It's, it's really just beautifully judged. Gigashvili doesn't play with the tension that Lupo brings into this part, but he's really setting off the violin. I did like his heavy attack at a minute and 43 seconds, and Batyashvili's response is appropriately dramatic, again with her phrase ending in a lovely tapering off. Nice contrast between loud and soft. Chung and Lupu play the music from 3 minutes and 30 seconds on as a passionate outburst followed by a weeping sort of section, a bursting out and ebbing of emotion. Here we don't get that, but we still get contrast. Uh, nothing extra musical here. I, I feel like the Chung Lupu, the Chung Wa Chung and Radu Lupu recording has a more narrative quality to it. You actually feel like there's a drama being played out in front of you. And I'm not really getting that here, but that's not really disturbing me because I like the uh, performance a lot. The duo sensitivity and tone here are fantastic. There's a genuine passion just after the six minute mark and a nice tapering off at the end. Okay, the Allegretto poco mosso when all the tension is resolved. Uh, Gigashvili starts this off at a sprightly tempo. I always find this movement touching after the previous movement. It sounds to me like all issues have been resolved and simple happiness reigns. By the way, I should mention it's in a canon form, which is very rare. Canon, if you think row, row, row your boat, when somebody kind of starts singing row, row, row your boat, when the first person is singing gently down the stream, that's a canon. That's what we're hearing here. And it's lovely the way it's traded back and forth, the violin starting, the piano following, then the piano starting it and the violin following, really beautifully judged and composed. The sound, this sounds light and rather quick. Beautiful balance in the recording, though, with Gigashvili playing quietly and with beautiful tone. Abrupt transitions are clearly taken. I'm hearing a lot more detail in this recording than on Chung Lupu, especially from the piano. There's a memory of the passion of the previous two movements at 3 minutes and 21 seconds. This is all played remarkably fast. The buildup of tension at 3 minutes and 57 seconds onward is effectively conveyed. The approach to the final chord builds up dramatically and is approached at a surprisingly quick speed. Okay, so the Chung Wa Chung and Radu Lupu recording is special, and I still like it better because it has this narrative quality. You almost feel like the violinist and pianist are two people who are in a relationship that's kind of experiencing this tension, and then it resolves and they're okay at the end. This this one kind of goes more for a musical 
look at the harmony, I think. But nevertheless, I liked it a lot. The Chung and Lupu recording is also old, and this one is clearer sound. And it's also a noteworthy performance, so I'd recommend hearing it. I still think Chung and Chung and Rado Lupu is the one to go for, though. I think that'll probably be my opinion for the rest of my mm. life. <laughs> I know it so well, though. I can't listen to it anymore, though. That's the thing. All right, so that's over. And then we go to the um, next work, a one, a 25-minute one-movement concerto for violin and orchestra uh, by Karol Zimanowski, who we're going to be hearing more of next week, by the way. This is his first concerto for violin and orchestra, Opus 35. It's long. <laughs> okay. It start, he's yeah. a really good orchestrator, though, I have to say. It starts with some lovely sonics from the orchestra. Truly an early 20th century piece. Okay, now this is the Philadelphia Orchestra that we're hearing. Yannick Neze Sagan, who is a, the conductor. Magical orchestral textures. There's a piano along with the other percussion in the orchestra. The violin melts into the texture at 38 seconds for its entry, slowly crescendoing, and plays a theme that along with the accompaniment, gives an enchanted woodsy kind of feel, like we're in a fairy tale, like in a deep wood in a fairy tale. This kind of something, you know, that this magical wood being in the woods quality to it. Um, balance is fantastic in the orchestra, and tempos and balance all sound superb. The violin returns with some stratospheric notes just after the two-minute mark. In fact, the violin is going to spend a lot of time in its very highest range in this work. Um, yes. The, yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> Maybe too much. <laughs> it it really does kind of make you say, "Wow, you're spending a lot of time there," <laughs> when you're listening to it. the The orchestra plays in excitable fashion when it has the spotlight, but slows down for the long lyrical violin lines. It's almost like the violin comes in and calms everything down. There's a lot to listen to in the orchestral parts. Uh, lots of ear candy. At 3 minutes and 40 seconds, we abruptly enter a quicker section, which has the violin playing more athletically along with the orchestra. A climax is reached at 4 minutes and 11 seconds, and we launch into another quick section featuring double stopping in the violin. Things suddenly darken with the bass drum rumble at 4 minutes and 55 seconds, like we've crash landed. Some foreboding music is heard at 5 minutes and 45 seconds, and the violin re-enters at about 5 minutes and 58 seconds. I like how Zimanowski starts a lot of new sections with a sudden change to a new brighter key. It's just he just goes there suddenly. Then there's an interesting missed climax at 8 minutes and 5 seconds, where the build-up brings us back down into quieter, more searching material. The violin soloist broods through this section. By the 9 minutes and 55 second mark, the violin is in the stratosphere, but drifting downwards, losing altitude. Another orchestral wave crashes to 10 minutes and 37 seconds with some emphatically dramatic lines and almost tactile percussive rumbling at and into the 11th minute. The violin plays quietly in the stratosphere of its range. She's spending a lot of time up there, as I mentioned. A high tessitura is used in this piece. At the 12 minute mark, we're not even halfway done yet. <laughs> We're 12 minutes in. Uh, a more emphatically rhythmic section of music emerges with the violin sawing quick double-stopped chords. Incidentally, we've heard everything the violin's going to do in this piece. The double stops, the stratospheric playing, and the, the brooding kind of, you know, sort of um, long kind of notes. Then comes back to the lyrical playing of the beginning by 12 minutes and 35 seconds. Uh, something more sultry is heard in the violin in the 13th minute. We burst into more active material after 14 minutes and 30 seconds. It gains in drama as it goes, the section. 
the energy dissipates by 16 minutes and 25 seconds and we're in a wispily accompanied section with various instruments picking up lines from the violin and vice versa i really enjoyed this part the violin finds itself at its high tessitura again at 17 minutes there's a big dramatic climax at 18 minutes and 35 seconds complete with pounding tympanum one one tympanum it tapers off and there's a sudden change to a skittering line in the violin after the 19th minute which quickly becomes virtuosic figuration there's another big climax at 20 minutes and 20 seconds yeah in a 25 minute work you're gonna have to have several climaxes just to keep <laughs> the material moving <laughs> after which we get a violin cadenza starting on double stopped chords it quickly quietens and the tone grows wispy with glissandos being employed between notes something that really caught my ear the cadenza goes on with varied material often returning to the sawed double stop notes until about 22 minutes 20 seconds when the orchestra comes back and takes over building up tension to the end and it reaches a big one by 23 minutes and 45 seconds at 24 minutes and 20 seconds we're back to the woodland sounds uh, we heard at the beginning and the violin makes one more high range quiet statement before reaching a high tessitura played quietly and with glissandos between notes the orchestra quietly closes the piece as the violin disappears into the stratosphere with some light notes and we're at the end now a 25 minute movement like this i was always told that the the key to enjoying a classical music piece is in the architecture of the piece if you know what that is you're going to follow the sections more this one it doesn't seem to have any kind of like form it's just sections and you're always in this kind of new place material does repeat though so there are some uh, themes that come back it's a little hard to follow though but it does kind of hold together track six Ernest Chausson Poem Opus 25 we heard uh Hilary Hahn play this sumptuously orchestrated work last year you might remember and in the hands of the Philadelphia Orchestra under Nezes Sagan's baton we get some full sounding orchestration here uh, the violin comes in at around a minute and 45 seconds quietly playing its theme uh, Batiashvili's tone is well suited to this work though it's a smaller tone than Hans and to be honest I really liked Hans thick brush better but that's a matter of taste really because this is a good performance as well um, at three minutes and 30 seconds the violin gets an impressive cadenza full of double stops that produce multiple melodies um, there's a build to a new key at four minutes and 50 seconds or so the orchestra plays watery figures that the violin waltzes over by seven minutes and 27 seconds the orchestra is introducing an ominous figure which the violin counters with gentle double stopped chord figuration there's a climax at eight minutes and 28 seconds that tapers off and it relieves a bit of the tension build up to this point what sounds like a resolve at nine minutes 11 seconds goes on into new harmonic material uh Batiashvili positively sings out these lyrical sections she gets a lot of solo time from here into the 11th minute and there's another build up to a climax before the 13 minute mark where we begin hearing the violin in its highest tessitura a dramatic rumbling climax at 13 minutes and 30 seconds with one of the themes broadly stated the violin quietly and rather sadly comments on it from 13 minutes and 40 seconds onwards there's a lyrical approach to the end Batiashvili's sense of the long line of this piece delivers in this performance though I think I preferred Han in this I'll have to go back and hear it again really okay so this is an excellent performance of this work I think I have 
a, a criticism of the programming. Hearing this work after the Zimanovsky, I mean, you've just focused on this 25-minute concerto with a lot of playing in the high end, and the two works mm. sort of work the same way with climaxes and then like a new section will come in, only this one is shorter and a little smaller. So it just doesn't wind up kind of registering the way the uh, Zimanovsky does. It's kind of in the shadow of that work, and I wasn't too happy about that. Maybe it'd be better to go straight to this track one day and just listen to it without hearing the whole program and just so you can get a really good assessment of what the, this performance is like. Anyway, we end with uh, a song by Claude Debussy called Beausoir. This is an arrangement for violin and piano by Yasha Heifetz. And uh, Yannick Neze Sagan is playing the piano on this one. Um, this work was originally a song, as I said, for voice and piano. A lot of violinists have played it though. And we get this this arrangement of it here we get only the melody it's a gentle piano accompaniment with a melodic line in the middle of the violin's range very pretty the piano sprinkling its figures like stardust around the melody there's a crescendo to a climax at a minute and 20 seconds or so the volume tapers off and we get our final quiet statement of the opening melody okay so this is a satisfying album with an excellently performed and recorded version of frank's violin sonata and a sumptuous concerto by Zimanovsky with a lot of treats for the ear in the orchestration and a lot of high tessitura playing from Batyashvili. I liked everything this violinist has released since hearing her Sibelius concerto back in the mid-2010s. Uh, the highlight for me here really was the first two works, but the poem also comes across well. Like I said, I felt like it was in the Zimanovsky's shadow a bit. It's sumptuous, but with all the ear candy in the Zimanovsky, it didn't register like it could or did on the Han recording. Uh, perhaps I should listen to it by itself. Anyway, recommended, especially for the Frank and Zimanovsky. I really enjoyed the Frank. I have several recordings of this, and this is very emotional music, and I've heard that done more emotionally, dynamically, yeah, and, and overdone uh, <laughs> yeah, that by too. various players. And to me, this is uh, this is kind of like. Uh, you know, I feel about like Rachmaninoff, who I really love. Mm. But that's music that can be too sappy in some hands. And yeah. that's one when we were last year talking about um, Trifonov. Mm. Uh, I really like his piano versions of Rachmaninoff because they're never too sappy. They're just strike that right balance uh, in bringing out the best in the material without bringing too much more to it. And I felt that here, I felt they saved up for the climaxes hmm. and they didn't overdo anything else uh, and sort of prematurely reach a sort of uh, emotional kind of uh, outpourings. And they, they just focused on, especially with her tone, which is really lovely and soft, which I appreciate. Uh, because I'm not a fan in general of, uh, you know, violin works yeah. uh, on their own. And so I, I really enjoyed this funk. I thought it was subtle and uh, tuned into all the nuances. And uh, I was a little worried at the beginning, as I mentioned, about the softness of the piano or right. the violin relative to the piano. Right. But it all worked out in the end. Now, the, the Zimanowski, <laughs> I thought the orchestral parts are very interesting. But this yeah. is what I don't like about violin. Just sort of all that hanging in that stratospheric range. Uh, yeah, no way that's up there. just, um, for me... That's not what I like about the violin as an instrument. And mm -hmm. uh, although I like the orchestral parts, I just was hoping for so, a little bit warmth more from the violin parts. But that's just me. In the lower end. And uh, 
the other works, you know, I thought they were, you know, uh, lush, uh, shows off the sweetness of her sound, which really is quite lovely. Yeah. Uh, I like the tone and the piano playing is fine too. So yeah, I would recommend this one just to hear this interpretation of the Franck, which is very famous, but uh, I think you'll find this one well balanced and uh, the violin tone exquisite. Yeah, this is one of my favorite violinists out there now. So um, Lisa Batiashvili, you might just want to type that name into your you know, your um, streaming search engine and see what it comes up with. Because really, you can't go wrong. She's really, she's mm. got a beautiful sound. I just like her playing a lot. Yeah, really nice sound. And if I'm saying that, you know it's good. <laughs> because, you know, like, not like the, the violin is the uh, the second most popular instrument behind the piano in classical music yeah. as far as like solo works go. So if you, if you like the violin, that, that, that eliminates a lot of, uh, a big chunk of uh, classical music, you know. I know it's just me yeah. and, you know, the timbres I prefer, really. So, it's not like I, nah, I don't like, like timbre. all violin music. I just prefer, you know, a certain register with it. And, uh, you know, of m most of my string recording collection is cello works. So right. there you go. You're saying like, <laughs> I had people come up to me and say, I love Baroque music, but I don't like the harpsichord. Like well, you know, the, the, mm. <laughs> that's basically the sound of Baroque music right there. It's kind of like saying, "I love rock music, but mm. I don't like the electric guitar." I mean, <laughs> you just don't have rock music then, you know. Or I don't like the drums would be the better, the more accurate one because the harpsichord is usually pinning that's down the harmony. Yeah. I wonder what's offensive about the harpsichord. I don't know. People don't like. I don't know. Yeah, I've had people say that to me. It's really strange. Anyway. Mm. The last work, the last album we have in classical music is by an American composer who really, I think, is going to be remembered as one of the the great American composers. Um, and because uh, the body of work he's amassed since I first heard him back in the 80s is um, really remarkable. I, I generally like what I hear from him, and it's more sophisticated now. The composer I'm talking about here is John Adams, who I'm sure a lot of people who listen to classical music regularly have heard of, and if you've probably heard his music too. And if you're listening to this podcast, wanting to get into classical music, um, this is someone, a contemporary composer, you will want to uh, get to know because it's really interesting and it's easy on the air and it's exciting music in a lot of ways. This is, yeah. um, the album is called John Adams, simply. That's the name of the album, John mm -hmm. Adams. And uh, this is played by the Tonhalle Orchester Zurich, conducted by Pavo Yervi, one of the great... Uh, conductors out there and I was happy to see that and I was like oh I'm gonna have to hear this on the alpha label okay so we get uh how many works four four orchestral works on this album by John Adams the first one is Slonimsky's Slonimsky's earbox and uh John Adams says about this piece that um it point it seems to him to have pointed toward a successful integration of the older minimalist techniques he really started as a kind of more energetic sort of Philip Glass type minimalist, you know, with the kind of generating the excitement of Steve Reich's um, percussion, um, you know, repetitive motifs, steady background pulse, stable harmonic areas, and more complex, more actively contrapuntal language, which I think really makes this piece work because he's got all these rhythms going and mm. it's, it's just exciting and interesting in every way. I really like this piece a lot. Uh, the model for this work was Stravinsky's Le Chant du Rosignol, the uh, song of the um, the nightingale. And I, I'm a great lover of Stravinsky's music, and I don't have a recording of this work. They're kind of hard to come by. It doesn't get recorded a hmm. lot. The uh, Chant du Rosignol, I'll have to seek that out. 
This piece is a tribute to the Russian composer, conductor, and musical lexicographer Nikolas Slonimsky, who Adam has met in California in the early 1990s. Okay, this work start. This is I think this is the highlight of the album, really, right here. <laughs> just sort of like the Haydn album that we heard. The the best work is first. Uh, this starts out with a big chaotic statement in the orchestra, loud. And yeah, quintessentially American in its bigness. Americans <laughs> do big very well. The recording is well-defined, but the orchestra, probably due to the sheer volume it has produced, is a bit distant from the microphones. Everything does register, though, but not with a richness I'm familiar with in recordings conducted by Yervi. And this is a work that would have benefited from a bit more closeness. It's loud, but it's got a lot of fantastic timbres timbre mixtures in it that I would have liked to have heard like kind of really close up so I could really enjoy that sound. When we get to the high speed solo string lines in the first minute, they register well, but don't sound up front. Uh, the change of texture to chiming percussion at 2 minutes and 20 seconds almost gets lost in the texture, yet is audible. Um, Yervi, I'm happy to say, gets the rhythmic excitement of this piece across very well. You really couldn't ask for a better conductor to conduct a work like this. And you'll rarely hear a better performance than this for that reason. Uh, it sounds like its complicated lines are played with abandon, yet they all come across in excellent intonation and perfectly judged. The work's sudden changes of rhythmic figures are characteristic of Adams, and uh, this particular work has fantastic sonorities and combinations of tampers as well. It's recorded close enough, but not enough to be sumptuous, and the timbral combinations Adam uses allow it to be that. Um, Tambral combinations are one of my favorite elements of orchestral music, and that's probably why I'm bringing this up so much. It really, it's really nothing to complain about if I'm you know, kind of not being my usual nitpicky <laughs> self. And uh, rest assured, uh, the performances itself is, is exciting. It would just be ecstasy if both elements came up optimally. Um, there's a slow passage in the eighth minute providing contrast in this uh, 14 and a half minute performance. It features long sustained lines, completely different from the constant activity we've heard up to that point. It has light metal and Asian sounding percussion, like little gongs, that sort of thing. Uh, bringing back the rhythm at 10 minutes, 15 seconds. The individual brief repeating motifs in the rhythmic figures are all appealing to the ear. They're catchy. This is an excellent performance, falling short in sumptuousness alone, but still registering well in the ear. I really wanted those timpani at 12 minutes and 45 seconds to explode out of the speakers. I wanted complaining knocks on my front door from the neighbors, but I didn't get them. <laughs> but I guess that's okay. It, this has this piece has a thrilling ending. By all means, give it a listen. This, this is probably the most rhythmically exciting version of this piece that I've ever heard. All right. Tracks two through four are a piece called My Father Knew Charles Ives. Charles Ives, of course, being a famous... American composer who influenced a lot of other American composers. There are a lot of autobiographical influences and typical American references combined in this piece. Adams thinks of it as his Proustian Madeleine. If we remember, um, Proust dipped his uh, Madeleine, which is a kind of cookie, into his um, lime tea, I think, and uh, ate it. And then this burst of memory just came back to him. And uh, we have 3,000 pages of... Uh, a la recherche de temper do as a result. <laughs> um, although uh, he says it's got this, his particular version, Adams has a Yankee flavor. He's from the, he, he's based in California, but I think he's from the, he's from New England. 
is John Adams. Here he's looking back on his childhood in New England and remembers his role models, uh, the American prose of Charles Ives in particular. By the way, um, Adams's father did not really know Charles Ives. It's just a name. <laughs> so don't get too excited about that. Anyway, first movement is called Concord, which is a typical, really, Ives title. Um, I think uh, his uh, piano sonata has this um, label as well, Ives's. But this is Adams's work. This starts with a cloudy, indistinct string harmony, characteristic of Ives in general. I've heard a few um, think of the House of Tonic at Stockbridge, or of course of the unanswered question, which this really brings to mind because we hear a trumpet mm. that recalls that the unanswered question itself um, next, although it's playing a much longer line here. In fact, the whole opening puts me in mind of that piece in its orchestration and sustained harmony. It's got a slow feel, but Yervi sounds rather excited by it and gives the tempo a bit of a push. It seems to be going by rather fast, and we're still feeling the adrenaline produced by Slanimsky's, Slanimsky's earbox previously. I do feel like the mics could have been moved up for this atmospheric movement. There are some atmospheric sonorities, particularly starting in the fourth minute, when chiming percussion join in with the rhythmic patterns of the upper winds. At five minutes, there's a rather familiar bass line. Whether it's an actual quote, I can't tell. Another familiar line passes through at five minutes and 30 seconds and onwards in the high winds. The music slowly morphs into circus-like themes by the seventh minute, then moves away to something more urgent. Lots of quick changes follow. By the end, we've got a march theme, also characteristic of Ives, as are the rhythms juxtaposed over it. And Yervi's pace pays off with the more active material comes into the piece. At the end, we're back to the atmospheric opening. I also want to mention Ives, in his works, often quotes popular songs from the 19th century. And one of the fun parts is identifying those songs. Mm. Adams may very well be doing the same thing here, but I don't know what the tunes are if he is. I, I did hear something that sounded kind of familiar in the uh, the baseline at uh, the five-minute mark. So if anyone knows what that is, let me know if it is indeed something. Second movement, the lake, starts with a fade-in, not an, an, a natural fade-in, of shimmering strings with brief nature sounds in the winds and percussion. Lovely timbres and atmospheric. Uh, there's a reed instrument. I can't tell which one it is due to its playing in its highest tessitura. Uh, plays a high line with brief glissandos and bends. Uh, this acts as a melody. Otherwise, this movement is mostly reliant on timbre. The individual timbres come up well on the recording, mostly due to the relative quietness of the movement. Third movement and final movement, the mountain. Starts with yet another Ivesian sustained harmony on the strings as that unanswered question trumpet comes in with another theme. There's a slow crescendo up to the repeating intense figure heard in the second minute. Pounding timpani mark time by the 2 minutes and 40 seconds mark, and we hear shrieking figures in the winds. The music decrescendos and crescendos again to something else intense by the 8th minute. Tempos and rhythms are beautifully realized in this movement. This sudden intensity disappears, and we get an atmospheric string line with percussion chimes in minute 9. The piece does a natural fade on a sustained note on the strings. The fifth track, this third piece, is called Tromba Lontana. And it's rather short. It's at 4 minutes and 20 seconds. It's Adams' response to a writer's block and a crisis of meaning that he had. And he redefined himself with this work in terms of sound from academic influences in his com compositional process. So he used to use academic influences that he learned from his teachers. Hmm. And here he went moved more towards something minimal 
the Philip Glass and uh, Steve Reich school, which he eventually kind of wound up as his own man afterwards. Uh, this piece is very brief and has a minimalist repeating figure quality to it that we're familiar with from not only Adams, but in a different style, Philip Glass, early Philip Glass. Glass has also gone his own way with these with this as well, though his music remains, like Adams, is very rhythmic. This has an elegant style to it. It's beautifully shaped here with the dynamics very even throughout the orchestra so that even the subtle bass line is almost sensed rather than heard. The recording on this seems much clearer. Is it closer? I can't really tell um, than the other works on the album. The performances come off with great subtlety. The last work is called Lollapalooza, and uh, with a name like that, you're just ready to be knocked out because that's where the word comes from. The piece was written to celebrate uh, Simon Rattle's 40th birthday, mm. the conductor Simon Rattle. He's he's much older than that now. Um, Lollapalooza originally referred to a knockout punch in a boxing match, and it now stands for something oversized and outlandish. Basically, everything Americans love, right? Anyway, this starts with a disjointed rhythm and a lot of syncopated sounds over it. This sounds relatively closely recorded, but I do hear the percussion and piano as further back. I've always felt the disjointed, lumbering rhythm preventing this piece from gaining momentum, and I feel that here too. It sounds difficult to perform with all the tricky rhythms in it, but here it doesn't come across as too careful. A lot of other performances do. It does sound a bit careful, though. I don't think this piece can get much momentum. There's something about it. I guess maybe it's just the way the rhythms fall that don't really allow it to like really propel itself forward. There's a good sense of fluency to it. It kind of sounds like a like a machine with a lot of gears, except that there are things sticking out of the gears and it's just kind of interrupting the flow of the machine, kind of, hmm. to me. Yervi doesn't throw caution to the wind here as he does in Slonimsky's earbox. I've heard this more vividly recorded in other performances, though. Anyway, about the album in general, excellent performances of all of these works. I feel like this starts with the best performance and ends with less momentum than it started with, sort of like the Haydn recording above. So I guess I've got a theme there. <laughs> you know? Lollapalooza doesn't come across as thrilling, though it's really not written to, I think. The sound is fine, but could really have blown me away if I if it were closer and more vivid. And I suspect the reason it's far back is because of the volume of the works here. I think it can get very loud. There's almost like a rock and roll quality to Slinimsky's Zerbox especially. You get great performances of all these works, and this may be the best entry into Adams' music for those interested in exploring it. I like John Adams' music a lot. It has a sort of, uh, I don't know what the right descriptors, but uh, it's got, certainly got incorporated rhythm. Americana sort yeah. of component to it that pops out here and there. Right. Uh, in and it's big works. and brash like American. And so to me, it really has that American identity. That is something about the United States that I really like, the, the big brashness of it, especially in art. Yeah. You know, I don't like it when you meet Americans abroad and they're like that. That's a different thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, you get a nice sampling of things here. Sonimsky's earbox has this real mechanical quality to it, machine-like in the rhythms almost, mm. that sort of bring these like industrial images to you. But yet it does have nice contrasts uh, in it as well. Uh, it's just very busy and uh, interesting. And my father knew Charles Ives. It's got a lot of mysterious kind of uh, passages through it. I really enjoy the 
ringing solo trumpet, uh, beautiful tones there, especially in the Concord. Uh, it sounds like a difficult uh, part to pull off big interval jumps mm-hmm. into high lines. And, you know, there's a lot of contrasting different sounds in there too. There's this like marching band theme with the snare drum and the strings that work against it. It gets a little chaotic, good low brass. You kind of get the feeling that you've just witnessed this strange parade and then you're left alone in the bleakness after that. The lake is atmospheric, got nice bubbling clarinet in there, more muted trumpets, that really interesting eerie distant chiming piano and the mountain has more uh, trumpet in it it's atmospheric yeah there's a lot to enjoy here it's a good sampling if you're not familiar with uh, adams's music and Lollapalooza is kind of a a fun uh, thing to end with it's kind of it's actually kind of jazzy in a way i guess it is yeah ostinato riff in the trombone and low reeds and it just hammers on uh with this uh kind of rhythmic thing through the end. So you get a lot of different kind of rhythmically exciting things, tonal qualities, uh, little touches of Americana, images of parades and other kinds of landscapes. It can kind of get these sort of hidden pictures in a memory of New England Mm. and, uh, you know, sort of distilled culture in his music, along with lots of interesting tones. So, yeah. Uh, I found it very entertaining and engaging. There's a lot on the surface level and also deeper things to pull you in. Hmm. And now we're going to move on to jazz and some, I don't know what's first here, but. uh... Today we're going to go a little bit bigger. So the theme in general is ensemble, starting with at least sextet, but basically going bigger up to 10. And there's a little sub theme, uh, a focus, but that will begin with the final two album. So let's just start out here with our basic sextet with a few guests. And this is going to be Amina Figueroa, the pianist's new recording, Joy. This is on Amfi. I guess that's, you know, a little contraction of the first parts of her name. Amina Figueroa, Hmm. Amfi Records 16 is the label it's attributed to. She's she's releasing these herself. Maybe. Uh, I guess it's on her own label, yeah. Well, she's got a, and, quite an operation there. And mm-hmm. uh, so Figueroa is a Azerbaijani jazz pianist, and she trained as a classical pianist in Baku. And she became also interested in local folk music, turning later to jazz. She completed her education at uh, Berklee College of Music in Boston. And since the late 80s, she's worked with her husband, who we hear on this recording, Bert Plateau on flute and performed around the world in jazz festivals. She's the leader of 13 albums and also recognized in Downbeat's uh, Rising Star Composers of the Year in both 2014 and 15. She's got 13 albums? Wow. That's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. Mm. And her previous uh, album was kind of more of a electronic kind of departure, a persistence, it was called. So here she's back on acoustic piano uh, for this recording, uh, which is, uh, you know, a nice exposition of her composing and arranging skills. So we'll have Figueroa on acoustic piano here. We've got the Japanese-born bassist Yasushi Nakamura, uh, who we hear on some New York-based recordings. Uh, He was on that Bird at 100 album last year, which I enjoyed a lot. And two drummers, 
Rudy Royston, who we always hear on the podcast, mm. and uh, Brian Richberg Jr., but it doesn't say which tracks. I can't find any documentation who plays on what tracks. I hear a lot of Royston on here because I'm really familiar with his sound. Uh, we've also got Alex Norris on trumpet, and we've heard him on the podcast before. We featured his recording Fleet from the Heat back in episode 36. We heard him with uh, Manuel Valera. Distancia in episode 56, and then he was also on Todd Marcus's In the Valley, episode 77, and then we just heard him, uh, episode 83 in the Pan American Nutcracker Suite uh, as part of uh, Joe McCarthy's New York Afrobop Alliance Big Band, but he's going to be in focus here with some nice solo work. As I mentioned, Bart Plateau on flute, which features prominently, and we love flute, so that's yeah. a great part of the arrangements here. Uh, Wayne Escoffery on tenor and soprano sax, a player I've followed with his work with Tom Harrell in the past, but I have to say he really shines here hmm. on this one. And we've heard him before with uh, Pat Bianchi, uh, episode 39, Something to Say. We've got a couple guest performances too on one track here, October Fantasy. We've got Sasha Masakowski on vocals and... On the first track, the title track, we've got Hassan Bakr. I think that's how you pronounce it, on additional percussion. So let's get into it. Uh, we've got the title track to begin with joy. This one starts out with tight, subdivided, high, and punctuated, syncopated bass figures from Nakamura. It makes a Latin-y kind of groove. And uh, Hassan Bakar adds some bright mallet work. I don't know if this is, what is this, marimba? Uh, I'm not sure. It sounds a little more metallic, but it's uh, it's some type of mallet instrument. Mm. Uh, then we get sax, flute, trumpet, snake in on uplifting legato lines together. Then the horn line split off with the flute getting its own sort of counter line to the sax and trumpet. Nice arranging. The halting bass and Figueroa's spaced out chords gives the horn lines more room to float over the hi-hat below. Latin percussion returns from Bakar, uh, sounds like timbales here, giving it drive as the horn lines become more animated and syncopated. It thins out for a tenor sax solo from Escoffery, and I think this is the best solo I've ever heard from him. Hmm. He just must have had uh, all his vitamins that day or something. It's just <laughs> bursting <laughs> bursting with energy and rhythmic figures, edgy tone, constant drive. This is just great solo. And Plateau is next on flute. He's got smooth, fluttering lines. It's graceful. But just enough edge on the tone to cut right through the whole ensemble. Sounds great. Uh, Figueroa follows on piano. Her right hand lines have these really springy rhythms and clear articulation. Uh, they kick back to the start of the horn melody arrangement for another run through with a new extended arrangement open for some percussion and drum featuring to the end. I thought it's a great arrangement and the rhythm and uplifting harmonies and lines are actually really joyful sounding. So it captures the title really well. Yeah. By the way, the beginning, uh, it's, I, I wrote, it sounds like there's some kind of distant xylophone or something percussive yeah, in there. I don't know what there. it is. Maybe it's a xylophone. It's a little, I don't really know what a xylophone be. sounds like though. It's not, actually, to me, it sounds like, a, mm. I don't know, like a marimba with a hard mallet. It's a little more... But it's metallic, though. It doesn't really sound like yeah, that, you know? Maybe it is xylophone. Maybe it is. I don't know. Something. See, I'm not really sure. Because nobody plays xylophones anymore. I don't really know what they no. sound like. Yeah. I've forgotten. I'm not sure. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, it's a nice little touch to start things off. Yeah. Track two is October Fantasy with a PH. Hmm. Figueroa starts solo on piano here with a gentle but rhythmic introduction. It's got a six-beat feel to it. 
Nakamoto joins with her rhythm with an elegant ringing bass tone. There's light drums and also Escoffrey joining in on soprano sax. And he's uh, one of these uh, players with actually a nice soprano tone. It doesn't sound like a car horn on a compact vehicle. Right. You know? uh, it sounds nice. And uh, it has big reaches up into uh, the high register. Figueroa takes over the melody with a soft touch of nice legato phrases. And then vocalizations from Sasha Masakowski layer on top uh, before she transforms that vocal into the lyrics of this tune. It's got a very dreamy atmosphere. The drums kick up with more energy and fills to push it along. It sounds like Royston's drumming to me from what I know of his playing style. Uh, the horns join in, adding thickness to the melody line. And then it sounds like Escoffrey's switched to tenor for that little extra uh, warmth in the sound. And it thins back to just vocals, piano, and bass to end softly. We've got green blues for track three. This is in 12-bar blues format. Uh, and we get to hear the happy rather than bluesy theme twice. Mm. The three horns take it together with nice stop time rhythm section work for the first few bars. It's a good horn arrangement. And then it gets really swinging. Uh, Nakamoto comes out first with a bluesy and agile solo for two choruses. Uh, Norris is next on trumpet. He's got a really fluid articulation. Even when he's up high, he mixes up some nice harmonic tensions along the way. Next is a horn section uh, for a chorus, like a solo section of horns, uh, showcasing Figaro's tasty arrangement skills here. Out of that horn, chorus plateau follows with a flute solo some real edgy breathy articulation hot lower register tone and a fun final falling line and then figueroa is next with an animated solo some bluesy touches and that works back into another two rounds of the melody to finish it off i thought of it you know it's green blues Reminds me more of like a green salad with blues cheese dressing. It's more, it's more <laughs> I, green. Than I can't it even is imagine blue. how that would translate to sound. I don't know. I don't I think know. it would sound it's like it's not this. so bluesy yeah. with just a few like you know little blue cheese accents there. But be a good, really nice tune. Be a good album title: Blues Cheese. Blues cheese. Anybody yeah. put that out? Okay. Yeah, it could be your your gift from Uplifting. the adult music podcast, jazz musicians. <laughs> Blues cheese. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to go to uh, not Mountain Dew, thank God, but Morning Dew <laughs> in uh, track four. I remember drinking Mountain Dew to stay awake in college. That was the oh, yeah. uh, the original Jolt Cola, I think. That Jolt stuff had Cola, a ton yeah. of sugar in it. God. Horrible for you. Yeah. Uh, but Morning Dew starts out uh, with piano from Figueroa with light uh, but rhythmic touches. Uh, it feels like six beats with chords on the upbeat that have a little tension from intervals of seconds uh, that resolve. Uh, and then there's also right hand spaced out melody figures uh, along with that left hand part. Drums add texture with cymbals and light tom hits and Nakamoto's bass gives it some rhythmic movement. The horns enter with flute on long tones and trumpet and sax weaving softly below on their lines. The rhythmic pulse dissipates with the end of the horn lines and leaves Figueroa over lightly brushed drums with sparse hi-hat and light bass pulses. She solos gently with simple figures that lead to more flowing and cascading lines. She has some phrases of left hand answering her right hand figures along the way. Uh, the horns return with a new line of arrangement, working more together and flowing with the piano, and that connects to the earlier floating flute idea. 
and a warm and lush ending. So it's a soft and lovely tune. Track five is called Ruby at Play. I think I read in the notes, although when I went to look back, I didn't see where they were. This is about her dog or something. And okay. uh, it's her a very dog? playful tune. Yeah, her dog. Like okay. uh, I think her dog is Ruby. Okay. I think. I hope it's not her kid. Otherwise, <laughs> 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 we're gonna we're gonna get an email. <laughs> yeah, it's a playful tune. Uh, a drum roll brings in the horns on some accented and syncopated hits to start the melody before things get off swinging over Nakamura's chugging bass. Has some really topsy turvy, fun syncopated figures that lock in perfectly with drum hits, ending with a soaring flute note, and they go around the twenty-four bar form once again. Uh, Ascoffrey is right out of the gate from there with a tenor solo swinging hard for another energized performance. Uh, then Norris takes over. Uh, they segue with part of the original horn line for a nice touch. Uh, Norris has some Woody Shaw-ish type lines uh, working through the harmonies here. There's another horn line transition into a flute solo from Plateau. Uh, great flute sound again, good intensity. Then it's drum solo time after that, uh, and great speedy tom work here. Uh, once more, around the playful melody to a happy ending. It's a good, fun, feeling track. Hmm. Track six is suddenly stars are falling from the sky. <laughs> it could be dangerous, I don't know. Hmm. Uh, but this one has a two-minute piano opening. Uh, starts with a ringing sequence of descending piano chords and upward runs. It's rubato, but soon gets rhythmic with a forward push before settling once again into a pretty melody with chords and arpeggiated accompaniment ending in a final upward run. Uh, the band enters with a warm melody and a slow four-beat rhythm with a lush horn arrangement where the lower register flute really glows among the other horns. Drum brushwork and cymbals help the horns swell to a big crescendo with the melody, and Figueroa gets some solo time then. Uh, this kind of slow tempo seems best for her style to me. It shows off these really smooth lines uh, and very touches sensitive articulation that she's really good at, probably from her classical background. I want to say something about that. Uh, the uh, the chord kind of reminds uh, it reminds me of like when Snoopy is uh, heading home from his uh, his uh, being shot down by the Red Baron and uh, it's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. It's like a Vince Guaraldi theme. <laughs> I was just listening to this recently because of the uh, they released the um, you know I think Kraft Records released the it's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown like music mm. the the takes that they have in that. So I just I have that in my ear these days and this really right. reminded me of that. Yeah. Yeah. Out of her solo, the horns come back uh, for a more lushly arranged melody, and then Norris gets a fluffy and flighty solo and it sounds like he's switched to flugelhorn here over building up with kind of help from drums and chiming chords from figarova things get soft for the ending with drums pulling back over delicate piano again from figarova it's a nice arrangement full of lots of dynamic contrasts track seven is called road ahead this starts with soft rhythmic piano Latin feeling cymbals and syncopated arpeggiated bass from Nakamura. Uh, when the horns enter, it gets a driving samba pulse from the bass, you know, the doom, da doom, da doom, that pushes mm. it along. Uh, though it's in six beats, or maybe it's three. I don't know how they. Uh, Depending on how you count it. Yeah. it. You can feel it either, yeah. Uh, Escoffrey has a solo first here. Sounds smooth and slinky. Hmm. Figueroa gets some rhythmic piano going under a horn line feature before Plateau is off on a flute solo with, again, really biting articulation, breathy figures. Figueroa's next on a solo. 
keeping the rhythmic pulses going in her left hand to push the Latin rhythmic right hand figures. The horns join in to push her along, and she returns to the rhythmic two-hand work with bass pulses from Nakamura for some tasty drum soloing to end it up. Track eight, Only Peace Liberates. Ooh, this nice one's title. a slow, hmm. waltzing 6-8 feel with a longing piano intro from Figueroa over simple textures. The horns come in with a warm, harmonized legato theme. There's a nice press roll on snare to lead into a solo from Norris. Again, really flexible and fleet lines in his trumpet playing. It's really well-structured solo that builds to a nice climax and then lets things down softly. Nakamura gets a bass solo next. He has some nice melodic ideas, clear articulation, both in the high and low registers. And then Figueroa follows up with that from there. She has long flowing lines, but builds up waves of tension and release with the help of swelling drums. The horns return with another flowing line, and then Figueroa continues with some more pretty piano soloing to the end, showing off a nice sense of flow and touch. Track 9 is Getting There. This one starts with very syncopated horn lines that obscure the meter uh, and keep things on edge rhythmically. Figueroa takes over for a strain until the horns enter again. Tight and busy drum work with lots of cymbals drive it along. Flute and tenor sax are up next for solo exchanges as a more steady 8-beat feel forms with intense drumming. This again sounds like Royston's style to me. Uh, after the fiery woodwind exchange, it chills a bit for Figueroa to solo. Here she focuses on lots of rhythmically playful ideas and plays more forcefully. Uh, the horns lead back into a little drum flare-up before pushing onto the end over swelling drums. Uh, great intense drumming on this track. It, the drums are really integral to how this one uh, moves along. Track 10 is Muse. This one has another lush intro of piano over swelling cymbals before the flowing horn lines enter. Now the meter and feel make this tune unique in that it's a very slow five, five, four, I would guess. But the fifth beat feels like a breath. So hmm. before continuing on, usually the fifth beat has no piano chord or bass note. So it, it feels like a pause before the phrases continue. It's, uh, it's very soft idea. and f yeah. flowing horn lines. Uh, Norris solos first, starting very low and warm. Again, sounds like he's on flugelhorn unless he can get this warm of a tone from trumpet. I like his variety of articulation, tumbling little figures, uh, the little spaces he uses between his phrases, just great playing. Figueroa's next. She plays some really chiming notes out of smooth runs with unhurried phrasing. Then the horn lines return. They're still very flowing. The little click in the drum groove and tight fills underneath. And it's nice how each horn gets little embellishments to its own line as it works to the end over some final trickles from Figueroa. And that's it. So there's a lot to like here. Figueroa's compositions are fresh and uplifting. The rhythmic feels vary. The horn arrangements are engaging. It's especially great to hear flute integrated through everything in the horn lines. Plateau, Escafri, and Norris all have inventive solos. Uh, Nakamura adds a solid foundation and Royston's drums are always uh, present and they add an integral feel of pushing to the songs. Uh, the other drummer, I'm not sure who's playing on each track, as I said. Uh, but Figueroa's soloing is best featured, I feel, on the slower numbers where she can highlight her buttery, smooth lines and nuances of articulation. So it's a really uplifting 
and kind of joyful sounding uh, recording. All right, now you said buttery. I said pearly. Okay, because it's got mm. she's got that round kind of tone quality that Murray Pariah has, and it really put me right in the. Um, if you, mm. if you want to hear Murray Pariah, just listen to his like recordings of the uh, Mozart piano concertos in the 1970s. You'll get an idea what I mean. It's a really unique uh, piano sound, and she's got a bit of that, especially when she plays uh, mm. scales. And then when she gets into like higher speed, that sound disappears, and she's <laughs> got this other this this other sound. Mm. So I thought that was really odd. The The classicalness of that sound and just when she played the scales really drew me because I have an ear for classical music as it is. But uh, I thought the album was warm and is bright and upbeat, as you said. Also, um, the other players on this album, you mentioned them all, um, provide a lot of musical interest themselves. <laughs> so hmm. everybody's yeah. really interesting to listen to on this. So there's a lot for the ear to enjoy. Sound is great too. Almost the clarity of a classical recording. Yeah, so it's kind of, yeah. it, it's a funny high, it's not a, I wouldn't call it a hybrid, but it's sort of, there are classical elements that it, in it in odd ways, like in the record, the quality of the recording, hearing through, you know, there's a kind of um, transparency to the, to the back, you know, in the, in the sound field and things like mm -hmm. that. Um, so she generates, she creates a warm atmosphere and when she leads things off and everybody supports her extremely well and in fact goes off on their own thing. So yeah, it was an enjoyable album. I liked it. Yeah. Uplifting. Joy. Good name. When you have, as I say, six or more, now you've got arrangements that mm. uh, add another level with uh, sort of different lines you can do and, and uh, timbres yeah. uh, mixing the instruments. And I think it does that really well. And uh, the mood is uplifting. Yeah. Given her sound, though, she could have been a classical pianist, I think, because she's got like yeah. a beautiful sound. Yeah. In certain parts, so, yeah, which she kind of hides sometimes, but uh, hmm. she does get it, yeah. Yeah, so uh, I'm going to go, I haven't listened to all of her recordings. I think I'm going to go back and check out some more. Hmm. And um, yeah, hope this one does well, though, because um, it's got a lot of playing. And especially uh, Wayne Escoffrey, I hmm. I know he's playing pretty well, but you know, he was really on on this day with uh, yeah. just bursting with exuberance, so. We we have to decide, at the end of the year we should pick the jazz solo of the year. Will it be this one or it will be uh, the guy who followed uh, <laughs> Rudrash Mahantapa on that? Who was that? The trombone oh, player? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Michael Dees. Yeah, Michael Dees. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we got to decide yeah. who's got the because the, the yeah, Grammys the always pick solo. jazz solo of the year. It's always something that yeah. doesn't really stand out. But I think we've got two here that are really yeah, there's special a couple good ones so. here. Yeah, this one yeah. was really just all the planets lined up. All right, we're going to continue the ensemble theme, but we're going to have a focus here, and that's going to be on the jazz giant, Charles Mingus. Uh, of course, I now all Mingus. jazz fans will know Mingus's music, but you know, we, we assume we have all different kinds of listeners. We may have more you know, classical-oriented people or people who don't know jazz too well, but if you're interested in jazz, uh, Mingus is one of the giant figures of jazz uh, who you should really check out his contribution to the music. I also feel like he, he uses bigger structures than like to say jazz tunes. And it it does feel mm. like there's like an almost architecture to it that makes me think of classical music, even though it really just sounds jazzy all the way through. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so Mingus was a, a bassist. That's what he's known for his instrument. But in actuality, he sort of started out as a cellist, but it wasn't easy for African-American musicians to 
sort of progressing classical music mm. at that time. But he did take a lot of what he learned on cello and applied it to bass technique. Uh, he also played piano, composed, led a band, and uh, was an author as well. We could read his autobiography <laughs> for <laughs> an interesting insight. Among his innovations in jazz music, he was a proponent of sort of collective improvisation. And, you know, he's one of the giants in jazz history, especially he spanned over these decades, even though he didn't live very long. He was playing with uh, the different eras of jazz musicians from Louis Armstrong, Ellington, bebop players, Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, and all the way to, you know, more modern players like Herbie Hancock in his early days. Uh, so Mingus uh, was born 1922, so this would have been the 100th year anniversary of his birth, mm. although he he died at the age of 56 in 1979 uh, from complications of ALS or you know what we call Lou Gehrig's uh, mm. disease these days. And he really was a larger-than-life uh, figure in every way. He was a big man. Yeah, he was. Uh, prone to... Uh, uh, emotional and sometimes violent outbursts against the audience or his other musicians. And, uh, you know, you can hear him on one of his famous recordings uh, telling the uh, audience to refrain from applause or other noises during the performance. <laughs> you know, so an uh, interesting character as well. His music lives on because they're played by contemporary musicians because there's so much to discover uh, in them. And uh, there's ensembles dedicated to him, uh, Mingus Big Band, uh, Mingus Dynasty, Mingus Orchestra, and Mingus Big Band. Actually, Ronnie Cooper, who we mentioned uh, earlier, was uh, a member of that band uh, as well. Now here, we're going to have two ensemble recordings dedicated to Mingus's music. There's lots of Mingus stuff uh, coming out in various formats this year for his uh, 100th birth anniversary but i think mingus's music really uh, shines when it's in a bigger ensemble and uh, you can sort of explore all the ideas but it's very mercurial and it's <laughs> kind of hard to describe because there's so much going on in a lot of his compositions but we've got two really good examples this week and the first one by ethan fillion a chicago bassist and uh, this is his meditations on mingus which is on a sunnyside label he says the arrangements break down into three basic categories. Uh, so Pithecanthropus erectus, Once Upon a Time, and Haitian Fight Song. These are kind of faithful to the original recordings as much as possible, mm -hmm. but they're orchestrated for this 10-piece group we're going to hear here. So mm -hmm. it's a larger ensemble. And then Meditations, Better Get It In Your Soul, and Prayer for Passive Resistance are kind of composites. So he's Mingus recorded different versions of his tunes over the years, and these are kind of drawn from various versions of that. And then there's two, Self-Portrait and uh, Rockefeller Tune. that also has new material that uh, Filion has added himself because he thought they're more flexible. And he says uh, it was all about finding way to encourage the types of individual and group improvisation that Mingus was so adept at creating in his bands. You know, so it sort of incorporates arrangements and spontaneity hmm. that typified Mingus's music. And so here we've got Fillion on bass, taking that big role of <laughs> Mingus's uh, long shadow in the music, but he also made all these great arrangements. Uh, we've got two trumpets, Russ Johnson, Victor Garcia, and we've got Rajiv Halim 
on alto sax, Jeff Bradfield on tenor sax, bass clarinet, and flute. And that bass clarinet's important in uh, Mingus recordings and compositions because that was uh, played by Eric Dolphy right. on a lot of those uh, seminal recordings. Uh, Max Bessison on tenor sax, alto sax, and flute. Norman Palm, trombone. Brendan Whalen on trombone. Alexis Lombre on piano. And Dana Hall on drums. And uh, <laughs> the other thing about uh, Mingus's uh, recordings is you're always going to get interesting titles. Right. Uh, most yeah. of the songs also have a story behind them, but I'm not going to get into things too much because then we'll be on for ever on the Mingus lore. But let's mm. just say there's a rich history and perspective behind all that. Anyway, we'll start out with once upon a time, there was a holding corporation called Old America. <laughs> and uh, yeah, right away. Starts, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> rich, slow legato opening of horns. Uh, it sounds like bowed bass mixed in there too. It builds in layers, harmony, and intensity as the trumpets get higher and the bones go lower. Uh, it breaks for softer sax, trombone, and flute lines uh, before breaking into a bouncing waltz led by an alto melody from, uh, I think it's Halim here. A uh, nice horn arranging and improv from trombone and trumpet through the arrangement. Uh, there's a playful switch up to 4-4 four, four for a few bars before it's back to waltzing and a bit of whole band improvised cacophony before Lombre clears the air with a solo rubato piano section. Back to more rich horns, legato over bowed bass, and then things get off swinging uh, with both trumpets soloing feverishly over building sax lines and continuing on until the rhythm dissipates over piano and bass. It resets again to light waltzing with trombone soloing over light rhythmic trumpet backing figures. Woodwind swoon in as well with a nice flute line included. Uh, Hall kicks it up on drums underneath as the arrangement really swells, goes through the original melody with the meter change-ups uh, until it breaks down again into trumpet improv over sparse piano. Uh, they get out there harmonically and playfully. Uh, finally, another lush legato arrangement of horns over rolling tom drums and some cymbals to finish it off. Track two, Haitian Fight Song. This one starts out with rhythmic and bluesy bass from Philium. He really digs in, working up to an ostinato line with some rhythmic variations to usher in a low trombone part featuring cool, fast, kind of triplet tonguing figures. Uh, the other trombone, saxes, and then trumpets stack on top with some plunger mutes added in there as well. The whole band's swinging to the minor blues groove. Trombone solos out of the arrangement with Fillion's bass chugging underneath the piano chords. Uh, the swing drive of drums and bass gives way to some horn backing uh, on the beats for a bit as the trombone solos on. Lombre gets a piano solo next. He keeps it basic and bluesy, concentrating on rhythmic feel uh, before working in some more reaching lines. The even horn stabs come back to cheer him on, and then he winds it up into some chiming bluesy chords. Fillion follows with a bass solo, which is bluesy and rhythmic, and drums and piano drop out to allow him to slow down and speed up some rhythmic figures at will. Uh, he gets some dialogue going between high and low phrases with himself before finishing up getting things reset with the bass line from the beginning. Uh, the horn arrangement builds again, and it slows down methodically for the ending with some final trumpet cries. Track three is Self-Portrait in Three Colors. This one's got like an open brass chord that sustains until saxes weave through with lines that echo each other over light tom work on the drums. A fillion enters on some delicate bass and a slow tempo takes shape with a soft horn arrangement over very light cymbals. It's rich, 
with good use of the trombones and nice fills from filling on bass below. Russ Johnson is featured on a really tender trumpet solo here over pretty piano trickles and soft trombone lines. The saxes and then also Garcia on trumpet enter, and the horns and more driving drums push Johnson to more animated and reaching solo lines. It comes down softly into legato sax lines, into a full rich horn arrangement and some more lines from Johnson, building to a big uplifting finish. And we're going to get Pithecanthropus erectus from the same titled 1956 album. I think Mingus's original notes on this, it's call it a 10-minute tome poem that uh, depict the rise of man from his uh, hominid roots to an eventual downfall due to his, quote, own failure to realize the inevitable emancipation of those he sought to enslave and his greed in attempting to stand on a false security. I guess the Pithecanthropus erectus is uh, the Java man fossil, hmm. which at the time they thought was the oldest human fossil. Anyway, lots of ideas mixed in there. Yeah. Uh, it begins with legato sax lines that turn more rhythmic over a medium driving swing from the rhythm section. Flute gets added in as well. The trumpets stack on top and sync up with trombones down low. There's a break. Things get soft, build up again as the tempo shifts up to a new driving speed and things get intense with some ensemble improvisation. The rhythm breaks for a piano chord and some long horn notes to a plop. And then a tenor sax solo leads off into swinging reset with some great horn stabs. Things speed up again and get busy with group improv before pulling back to the medium swing uh, for a bass solo from Filion. Bluesy licks, uh, great bounce to it too. Hall responds with matching hits and fills on the drums. Uh, the rhythm gets busier and faster, and horns add in some improvisations over Filion. Then it comes out with an alto sax solo, uh, cheered on by horn stabs, and a great low trombone riff as it gets really chugging along. Uh, the horns turn more legato and layered for a while while things get frenzied with rhythm and improv, and then make a soft reset with just the sax into a swinging drive with horn stabs and bones cheering. It gets a bit soft again, pushes into a final group improv and a little bluesy slowdown to the end. Track five, Prayer for Passive Resistance. Fillion works a bass riff around a 12 bar progression with a light hi-hat hits with syncopated surprises in the last two bars. Bones and saxes join in the next time around as well as trumpets and then bass clarinet. The syncopation and big hits make you feel a little punch drunk <laughs> from this uh, until Fillion sets things straight with walking bass for a sax solo. Uh, I think it's from Halim here. Things build up with tricky rhythmic bone and trumpet backing lines, and Halim blows on and on. Uh, the horn's returning again with longer, more harmonically dense lines, then a fun stop time horn section with bass clarinet. It ends with a reset to a dirge-type tempo and final sax licks over brass chords of open intervals and a final drum kiss-off to finish it up. Hmm. Track six, another kind of uh, deep meaning track from Mingus Meditations on a Pair of Wire Cutters, also known as Meditations on Integration or Praying with Eric. This was composed as a response to inhumane imprisonment in the South, and it was a showpiece for the early to mid-60s sextet with Eric Dolphy, who I mentioned before, Johnny Coles, Clifford Jordan, Jackie Bayard, and Danny Richmond. And this is the uh, band that uh, Fillion says was his main inspiration for performing most of this music. 
starts with a repeating sax and trumpet and then uh, just sax riff that make a scene for a floating flute and high bowed bass line, which is a really interesting combination. Mm. Flute and high, very mm -hmm. high register bowed bass. Uh, the riff changes up, tinkling piano and more horn figures get peppered in. There's a lot going on here. Uh, <laughs> drum toms beat into a new legato horn theme that gets broken up by a few fast bars before returning. Horns float eerily over bowed bass without drums and then a solo piano section that gets joined by Fillion's bowed and then plucked bass. Fillion then sets a new pulsing beat, gets joined by drums and horns on insistent riffs with cross rhythmic trombones weaving through. Gets into the legato horn theme again with a fast few bar injection into a new swinging groove for a bass clarinet solo from Branfield. The groove changes up to a Latin feel in spots. It slows down, resumes swing as Bradford blows along. Uh, it kicks up again for some trombone solo exchanges between Palm and Whalen over the changing grooves. And they come out swinging for a lumber piano solo with some percussive chords and rolling right-hand figures. Next is a new horn arrangement section with swinging lines into quick tonguing, blasts, and shakes for a bit. It keeps changing up between lyrical lines and tension-building rhythmic ideas in sections before a return to the flute and bowed bass theme over rhythmic riffs from the beginning. The bass bow cries high and eerily over low piano figures to end it all. This is a very big work and a great mm -hmm. feat of arranging. Then we've got Remember Rockefeller at Attica, another well-known Mingus composition. This one starts with solo alto sax from Havim over driving swing from the rhythm section to get this off to a happy bounce. The field changes up for a few bars to straight Latin feel as horns join in and then swing along again with tricky rhythmic figures. There's a quick little pause before things get swinging into a full band arrangement with great lines from each horn section, especially the trombones. Next is a puckish trumpet solo that swings along and squeezes up high, cheered on by ho other horn lines, and the band swings into some exchanges with Hall's drum soloing. A lumber gets some rhythmic piano bars before the band swings to a final piano chord uh, that we remember from the little pauses on the journey. And then, better get it in your soul. Um, but I'm wondering, because we're going to hear this again on the next recording, is it better get hit? I, I think they're two soul. different. Well, they're they're both the same composition, more or less. But mm. I think I think better get hit in your soul is like a different sort of arrangement of. Could be. M it. Mingus recorded them both. They're, they're mm. better get it in your soul. This one is on um, Mingus Aum, mm. and the other mm. one's on a different album, I think. Because okay. I've seen the them both thing. on Mingus albums. They're Can both we... pretty much the bed, the same tune, though. Yeah. This one uh, starts with solo minor bluesy and rhythmic riffs from Philium. It gets joined by a bluesy bone. The saxes swing it in 6-8 on busy lines, and all the horns come out to play on the thick and gospely blues arrangement. Uh, first up is a sax solo, egged on by the rhythmic trombone lines. Grooving rhythmic piano solo follows into some solo sax, backed by only hand claps, until the rhythm section joins back in and finishes with some wailing licks. Hall's drums alternate solo courses with busy skittering horn arrangements, then get some extended solo time. The horns come back for a more full and gospely arrangement, slowing down into some amens from the sax and a hmm. new bouncy gospel drive from Philion, joined by a tenor sax solo and then the horns whooping it up to the final amen with a little trumpet growling there too. 
So this is a really exciting recording of Mingus's music. It captures the spontaneity and mercurial qualities of his compositions, but the arrangements are inventive and give the horns plenty to do to fill out the compositions. Uh, the solos are all inspired and intense, including Fillion's bass. I think it strikes the right balance of keeping the spirit of the Mingus originals and adding new interest and excitement in this sort of you know larger, not big band, but... 10-piece ensemble. You can do a lot with different tone colors and uh, multiple layers of sound here. And uh, yeah, I think it's a good recording. Yeah, I like this a lot. This is probably my favorite jazz recording of the week, actually. Um, Mingus, in general, he had a bigger idea of what jazz could communicate than most people have today, because it's yeah. we don't really hear big compositions like this anymore. Uh, there's a lot of integration or juxtaposition of styles in these compositions, especially in the first track on this album. Uh, the whole idea of large form in classical music is taken into a lot of his work. So these must have been something, there must have been a lot of work to actually learn these, to play these. And he uses traditional jazz forms, dissonance, and other popular styles to get his ideas across. Mingus is a jazz composer classical musicians can really get into. And for me, hearing these compositions in modern sound is always a bit of a thrill. And the playing here is really great. I like the way certain instruments were entirely in certain channels. Like there was a trombone in the, only in the left channel. It was kind of, yeah. Know, but but the rest of them, it wasn't like we have these instruments in this channel, these instruments in this channel. But they were spread across, and some there were one or two of them were only in one channel. I thought that was really interesting. It worked out well. It didn't make the stage seem restrictive, and it worked well with this size of an ensemble. And um, Fillion has a great feel for Mingus' sense of rhythm when he plays, too. He sounded great, too. Mm. I really enjoyed this a lot. Yeah, definitely check this out. Um, yeah, absolutely. If you like uh, ensemble, you know, a little bit bigger group sound and Mingus's music in general. Really good recording. Yeah. And we're going to go on to another Mingus uh, ensemble recording. Maybe this one was held back uh, for this year because it's uh, coming along in a series of similar type right. of recordings, um, because this is a series of Latin sides of composers. Yeah. And um, if you hear that Latin side, well, you may associate that with the trombonist Conrad Herwig yeah. and the Latin side of Mingus on Savant Records. And uh, well, Herwig is from New York City, uh, started out in Clark Terry's band in the early 80s. He's been a member of uh, Joe Henderson's Sextet. Tom Harrell's septet and big band, played with Joe Lovano, played with uh, John Faddis Jazz Orchestra, Jeff Tane Watts, and he was a member of the Mingus big band as well. But he's uh, recently gotten four Grammy nominations for his uh, series of Latinizing recordings, including John Coltrane, Miles Davis, Joe Henderson, Wayne Shorter, Herbie Hancock, Horace Silver. And so here comes out here at the Latin side of Mingus and <laughs> we like Latin stuff and it all yeah, works with uh, Mingus's compositions uh, and you're just going to get all these great grooves here. Um, so, and I've heard a few of Herwig's uh, older recordings of Latin side right. recordings. I heard the Joe Henderson one and uh, yeah. yeah, they're really great. They're all really They're great, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and he's just a really exciting uh, trombone player too. Yeah. I mean, whenever he plays a solo, he's really wound up uh, to right. you know, give it his all. So uh, he's here on trombone, and we've got uh, Randy Brecker oh, on wow. trumpet. Yeah, you can't go wrong here. Yeah, <laughs> and also Alex Sipiagen 
another monster trumpeter, uh, also plays flugelhorn on here. And we hear him a lot in a lot of recordings, yeah. Yeah, Craig Handy, the always reliable tenor sax player, but he's also got some flute and bass clarinet going here. As I said, you've got to get that bass clarinet in. Yeah, uh, uh, we're always recording. happy about that. Yeah. Mm. You've got the always amazing Bill O'Connell right? on piano oh, yeah. uh, and also Rhodes on one track. He's a real master of uh, Latin music on his own uh, recordings as well. We've got Luque Curtis on bass, Robbie Amin on drums, Camilo Molina on congas, and special guest Ruben Blades. Wow. The uh, Now, if you want to see a guy who's got a resume, look up all the things Ruben Blades has yeah. done. Not only from salsa music to like head of tourism in uh, <laughs> in uh, Panama. I think he's got a law degree from Harvard, and now he's on like two or three TV series, and he's still recording big band albums. Uh, the guy is uh, just uh, he's, he's a major cultural force in in yeah. you know Latin America, Latin music, and just in yeah. just in music alone, <laughs> he does all his other stuff yeah. too. Boy, anyway, he contributes his. Um, great uh, narration voice just on one track here so we're going to start out with uh, gunslinging bird this one has like rhythmic bass and piano figures with offset horn hits to that rhythm that begin it uh, the bass gets into more of a groove over the drums and congas with some piano improvisations from o'connell into a horn arrangement building up with counter lines sounds really thick uh, first up a trumpet solo from randy brecker here over stop time horn figures builds up with horn backing lines. Herwig follows with a trombone solo. It's really intense, tricky slide work and lip figures, harmonic tension that builds up into a solo from O'Connell, next on piano, ringing chords to start it out, complex rhythmic ideas, interesting harmonies. He always dazzles whenever he plays. Mm. He constantly knocks me out on this album too. There's a synchronized horn theme arrangement alternating with some drum and conga soloing. The horns come back and split off into lines building to the end with a contrasting final chord to the minor mood we've been hearing and some final thoughts from Herwig's trombone. Next up, Boogie Stop Shuffle. This one has a funky Latin groove with staggered syncopated horn lines. Piano and percussion make an interlude before the horns go around again. O'Connell gets a Cuban piano motif going underneath. Uh, a new horn strain comes along with Herwig working against the rest into a solo for him. Uh, he's blowing strongly here, ending his phrases with little falling cries. Uh, he really pushes it over the rising chord sequences. Next is a trumpet solo, lots of teasing pauses, a variety of articulation, and then those famous high trilling figures, Randy Brecker, you know, mm. and he has that laser tone. Um, it's always great. But I met Randy Brecker when I was like 17. Really? Uh, in Chicago. Yeah, I got to talk to him for a little while. It was oh, cool. uh, yeah, a real highlight. Uh, I always oh. remember that. Yeah. After uh, Brecker solo, O'Connell is next. Piano solo, constant driving, left hand, ascending harmonic ideas as he dissects the rhythms in this uh, segment here. The horns stack behind him into a little percussion breakdown uh, into a repeat of the original melody uh, to the end with a fun low piano line to the final horn phrase. Track three, Don't Let It Happen Here. Uh, this is where Ruben Blades comes in to narrate. Uh, he's surrounded by trumpets, trombone, and bass clarinet, first each as a solo instrument and then all joining together. The horn arrangements create a fanfare kind of processional uh, with some real trumpet screams 
probably from Sipiogen here. Our Latin groove emerges with Curtis's bass and bass clarinet from Handy, with the rest of the horn stacking up with a rhythmic arrangement into screaming lines. O'Connell gets some piano improv, and then Blades returns, this time in Spanish, and here he spaces out his narration uh, as a trumpet takes over the solo spot and then passed off to a Herwig on trombone line. Handy on bass clarinet as well. Eventually, everyone is locking in and they get on this really accented groove along with Blades' uh, Spanish narration. And that finally spirals down into uh, some final lines. So kind of... Yeah, we, sh we should mention the poem is the... Uh... That, you know, one day they came and I said nothing poem, yeah. you know, and then they eventually right. come for you. And uh, the Spanish poem is the same thing. It's just the same words in Spanish. So right. you hear it in both languages, English and Spanish. Interesting effect. Hmm. We've got really famous uh, Mingus Doom, Goodbye Pork Pie Hat. Herwig starts this one out on solo trombone. He gets joined by bass. Drums and percussion come in with some ringing lines from O'Connell until some horn riffs join. And then Herwig takes the melody on his own for a strain, moving into a softer horn arrangement, uh, O'Connell getting more to play between lines. Ah, then it's flute solo time from yeah. Handy. Breathy, edgy, he gets a bit bluesy, really sounds great. Trumpet and trombone solo exchanges follow between Brecker and Herwig. And then O'Connell gets some more space to solo uh, with horn backing lines floating in and out between his continually inventive rhythmic ideas. He gets into a Latin vamp for some conga soloing here. Uh, then we get some trumpet uh, soloing with ripping lines from Scipiogen uh, before the horns take it through the melody arrangement again. Uh, extended holds on the final chords give Herwig some room for some final last words on the trombone. Track five, Hora Decubitus. Curtis starts it out with a rhythmic and bluesy bass intro. He works up a groove joined by drums and conga, and then Handy takes the topsy-turvy line on tenor sax, gets joined by Herwig on a counter line. Trumpets build it up more into some blowing exchanges between Handy, Brecker, and Herwig, and they all join in together for a bit before O'Connell gets a solo. Again, dazzling with rhythmic and harmonic ideas and high tinkling phrases. The horns join in together on a unison topsy-turvy line that works through to some bass from Curtis and back to Handy on the melody. Builds up with uh, bone and trumpets again uh, with some drums and a trumpet scream to finish it all off. Track 6, Duke Ellington's Sound of Love. Drums, conga, and bouncy bass set a smooth groove for O'Connell to do some Rhodes work here. Yeah. Bone and flugelhorn have a smooth melody line that splits into nice harmonies with Handy joining in on sax. Herwig gets a solo line sounding big and fluffy uh, before the horn arrangement gels again. Sipiogen gets a flugelhorn solo here, fast agile lines and uh, long trip up to the stratospheric range. <laughs> he really likes to play high even when he's on uh, flugelhorn. Yeah. Um, Handy follows with the flowing tenor solo. The horns have fleet arranged lines around Herwig's solo licks next and then O'Connell rings out on the roads for some soloing with little dizzying fast lines. Uh, Herwig gets some more high floating lines into a final lush horn arrangement and syncopated pushing of the phrases to the end. I didn't think this one sounded very Latin, by the way. It's kind of it's yeah, probably the least of yeah. much. I think Mingus brought in a lot of that sort of arrangement ideas from Ellington into okay. his music. And I he see. could compact those even into his smaller groups, mm -hmm. you know, and um, you know, here we can expand it, but I, I think 
Yeah, you don't want too much of a groove. I guess uh, for this in one, this one maybe, yeah. But uh, hmm. still sounds good, and I like the oh, Rhodes it, yeah. effect on there too. Yeah. Uh, now <laughs> here we go. All the things you could be by now if Sigmund Freud's wife was your mother. <laughs> Unpack that one. Yeah. Um, fast ripping horn lines feature in the melody on this one. Lots of busy movement going on in the bass and piano. Handy comes in or comes out of it, rather, with rising riffs into a solo backed by rising bone and trumpet lines. He flows over the groove with smooth excitement. The horns build into another solo from Randy Brecker with rising lines of excitement and bubbling phrases and that high laser-like tone. Uh, Herwig follows up with a solo of more agile lines that sync up in spots with the backing horns. O'Connell has a solo too, building the intensity with more rhythmic push and high register ringing notes. The horns push it into a percussion flare-up over piano, and then a segment of the ripping melody line closes it out with Herwig adding a final high trombone note. And then better get hit in your soul. I'm gonna finish it up here. Starts out with Curtis's rhythmic and bluesy bass. He sets a groove, joined by O'Connell and drums. The horns join with a gospely and smooth arrangement with good counter lines. Uh, the rhythms of the lines change up over the Latin groove nicely. Herwig comes out of the arrangement with a really sly and bluesy solo. He's really having a good time on this one. Mm. And I was too, listening to it. Handy's next on tenor sax. He makes it bluesy and dirty. Then he makes it a bit choppy into a more Latin-y kind of feel, uh, getting a really good edgy climax in tone. Then we get a Harmon muted trumpet solo. From Randy Brecker here, rising horn lines behind. Uh, O'Connell follows up with piano solo that eases up into a percussion breakdown. The horns take another run through the melody, and then Herwig gets out the plunger for some fancy plumbing work, and the muted trumpet joins him, simmering out to a soft ending over some rising figures from O'Connell and soft drums. So, Latin Mingus... Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Great grooves, fun arrangements. Herwig's trombone is always on fire whenever he's playing. He's just got lots of energy. You get great solos from Randy Brecker and Handy as well, covering lots of woodwinds. Uh, Bill O'Connell is always one of the best pianists whenever you have a, a Latin sort of um, atmosphere going on with his own mastery of grooves and cool harmonic concept. And you got the powerful horn of Alex Sipiogen added in there too. Get a little Ruben Blades uh, <laughs> voice in there. there yeah. And uh, yeah, I say uh, keep serving us up uh, Latin sides of everything. Uh, to me, it's like uh, I can you, never you know, get enough whenever of Latin you come jazz, over really, to my anyway. house yeah. and we cook, uh, I always have um, those Marie Sharp hot sauces oh, yeah. uh, there. And there's a smoky one, an extra spicy one. Right. You just put them on everything. Yeah. And everything tastes better. Uh, <laughs> steak, chicken, whatever you got. And it's kind of the same with uh, the Latin side, you know. Yeah. You sprinkle that on some Mingus, some uh, Coltrane, and uh, it's always going to go down really well. So, same here. Yeah, I think this one... I like this whole series, really, and I knew I was going to like this, and of course I did. I think this album is more Latin than Mingus, although the tunes are really all recognizable. I mean, I'm not complaining right. about it. That's certainly a good thing. Um, these all work well in the Latin rhythmic idiom. Really, everything does. Like you said, like it's like the hot sauce. It just makes everything taste better. Yeah, I, I think uh, the playing on this record is just fantastic, too. You have some yeah. really great yeah, uh, giants. musicians. So on top of just having these Latin melodies, you have all these like, you know, giants, you know, soloing throughout, and it's just great. 
you know, Conrad Herwig's bands, every, every album I've heard, he's always, they've always been, uh, it's always been exciting in these types of projects. It's exciting playing. <laughs> yeah. Listen to this, listen to some other ones too. Latin side of, yeah, just type yeah. that into your search engine and you can, you just can go crazy with fill that. your, your, uh, cue list, you know, <laughs> with right. all of them and have a good weekend. Yeah. yeah. Get some, get some uh, hot sauce and uh, get some margaritas. And, I, I, uh, I did like that Marie Sharp's yeah. uh, you know, comparison. Though. I was like, yeah, it, was, yeah. it works well. <laughs> yeah, spices it up nicely. All right. Yeah, so they have it. Uh, some ensemble jazz, um, different feels with the focus on Mingus. It's always good to remember his music. You can never explore it too much. It's a whole world on its own, and we should often rediscover it. Yeah. So a good work, a good week of listening. I really enjoyed yeah. just about everything this week. It was good. We got some, you know, in classical, we revisited some things, but in a new way. Uh, Haydn, Franck, Adams. Some old favorites, yeah. Uh, yeah, some old favorites. And yeah, we heard the, the worst Haydn symphony. <laughs> <laughs> the worst Haydn symphony, which wasn't bad at all. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, next week, we're going to get our passports out. We're going to do something kind of different next week. Yeah, we're going to... How did this come about? We're going to do like old Polish yeah. um, bands and classical composers. Now, Polish yeah. classical composers aren't so hard to come by, but we're just going to we're going to just make this even more difficult for ourselves and have no Chopin on this one. Okay, yeah, <laughs> he's, no a, he, he's he's not in this one. Yeah, I just yeah. happened to have three Polish composers. I said, "Hey, can you do a Polish one?" And I guess we're going to do that Polish jazz. And as I well. just happened to have three Polish jazz recordings on my <laughs> listening list so break out the sausages and yep, we're uh ready. we're gonna have a uh, a polish music festival next week it's so. also gonna be, it's also gonna be a uh, pronunciation festival too you're gonna really enjoy yeah. that <laughs> yeah we're not gonna have uh we're gonna be in desperate need of vowels that we yeah will not come along so yeah we need, where's the wheel of fortune to... when you need it i want to buy a vowel <laughs> yes we're gonna have to uh <laughs> practice up with some uh, pronunciation aids to get yeah. through that one. But I shall it should be, be doing interesting. my research. One of the things uh, I wanted to do, especially with jazz, is uh, get jazz from different countries uh, yeah. that uh, a lot of people don't know about. So we're going to go deep into Poland next week and get some jazz in there too. That should be good. Yeah, for, for, for classical, we've got two 20th century composers who have been recently rediscovered and there. A lot of recordings are coming out by them. So oh, I really wanted to great. highlight those. Looking forward to that. Mm. So as we said, also uh, be sure to check out next week um, because uh, we might have a little update with um, a little Adult Music Summit event yeah. that's uh, supposedly going to be going on here. And uh, if you want to know the those Polish recordings for next week, after this episode goes up, We'll uh, get the playlist up on Deezer later in the day, and that'll also be shared on our Facebook page. So come over and check us out on Facebook and get some more uh, new releases during the week. As always, thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. And remember, uh, go over and check out Something Came from Baltimore podcast from Tom Goker to get some interviews. He's got Yellow Jackets uh, this week, yeah. so I'm going to check that out. And uh, look up some of that past catalog too. Uh, I'm going to go check out that Todd Marcus interview because uh, because we, we talked. Was, well, we didn't talk that. We did his yeah. album. Yeah, we, that was one yeah, of my favorite album. albums of the year too. I might have more than ten. I'm going to have to whittle this down because I only get yeah. I only get ten tough, jazz albums. I don't know. Tough whittling this year. There's a lot of good stuff. Yeah, maybe mm -hmm. I might have to like jump off the deep end and just kind of leave leave like Catherine Russell off my list even though it's probably my favorite album of the year just so because I know you'll put it on and I can get an extra yeah. one on there you know 
don't know. Mm. I'll have to see how I do right. this. Yeah. It'll be interesting. Mm. There's still much more to go too. We've got uh, two and a half months of stuff. So yeah, there's still more yeah. coming too. It's a, it's been a yeah. great year. I think better than last year. In fact, I really enjoyed the, mm. the music I heard I this year a lot more. Yeah. I think part of the reason we're stuff. hearing so many, we, yeah, geez, we're being overwhelmed with new recordings now. I think it's because all the stuff that was recorded during the pandemic is now coming out. Yeah, you know, that's right. Yeah, so yeah. And, and I guess everybody was busy then because they had nothing else to do, so they just recorded or something. Yeah, they weren't playing live. Wish the yen was a little stronger so I could get more of these, though. <laughs> <laughs> Buy all of them, yeah. Things will get better. All right, so this has been episode 85 of Adult Music. And tune in again for episode 86 with our special Polish feature. So until next week, tune in. Deezer, Facebook, get that playlist. Start listening ahead of time. And we'll see you again next week for a new one.